Dropping that culture. 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 Dropping that in uh, the 2020, but uh, first off, we need to start off on a serious note. Uh, since uh, since our last show this past Sunday, uh, we lost a great, uh, all-time great uh, in the world of basketball, uh, L.A. Lakers star Kobe Bryant. Uh, let's, let's go, L.A. Lakers legend Kobe Bryant. Legend, legend definitely yeah. was earned and warranted. Uh, unfortunately, he uh, passed away this past Sunday due to an helico- helicopter incident. Uh, in Calabasas, uh, they're still investigating the cause. A lot of people are saying it's because of fog and you know the, the, yeah. uh, the sound. Sounds like they just didn't get high enough to get over the mountains. Exactly. Yeah. But not only was Kobe involved in the accident, but we also lost uh, his daughter, Gianna, mm. thirteen years old, and she was a prospect in basketball herself, and also a few other people. One of which was a coach. I believe his name was. Uh, John Antebelli. Yeah, lost and, uh, lost a coach from uh, Orange County County, Community, yeah. or Orange Coast Community College. His, his, and his wife and daughter. And his wife and daughter. Yeah. Uh, we also lost uh, another teammate yeah. of, uh, of Kobe's daughter. Yes. He was, uh, was a tragedy, the pilot, of course. And, uh, yeah, and uh, another... Uh, another coach. Uh, no, it's another What's coach. It? Yeah, uh, another coach for the Mamba School. Yes. Yeah, coach from yeah. Mamba School. And I believe a mother and her daughter. I believe the names escape me. But, yeah, it was, I think it's like eight or nine people in total. But uh, it's been crazy out here in L.A. the last few days, man. Like, murals and traffic has been nuts, especially going around the downtown area because there's been, like, vigils and different things uh, to celebrate the life of uh, one of the all-time greats, Kobe Bryant, man. And uh, like I said, I personally, uh, my favorite Kobe moment probably would be I watched the 81-point uh, game live, and I thought this was, like, probably one of the best performances, you know, I've ever seen. Like, in mm-hmm. this point in my life, is one of definitely one of the best, best basketball performances I've ever seen. Before that, it was when uh, Jordan scored 60, I think, when he had the flu or some shit like that. But yeah, when he during the uh, NBA uh, yeah. finals. Yeah, but 80, 81, bro. Yeah. Second of all time behind Will Chamberlain, 100. You know what I'm saying? But a lot of people not, didn't even think that somebody would even get close to the Will Chamberlain record, and one person did, Kobe yep. Bryant. You know? So many celebrities and uh, sports figures have gone out, gone out of their way to uh, pay respect to this uh, this legend. And uh, uh, we on uh, Dropping That Culture would like to say our condolences to the family of, uh, of the Bryant family, uh, particularly his wife and uh, the, their remaining daughters. I think it's like three daughters left. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like I said, uh, rest in peace to Kobe Bryant and all those uh, who will perish this past Sunday. Yep. Yeah. All right. So now that we got out of the way. Rest in peace, Kobe. Let's go ahead and pop back into our regular show. So we're going to go ahead and start it off with uh, 7 Degrees of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. So uh, let's see. This is, again, the game where I can connect any major American film star to the great Eddie Murphy within seven movies. Uh, variation of seven, 6 Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but I like this one better. So what names do you got for me this week, buddy? Kevin Bacon. That's too easy. We've done that before. Did we do Kevin Bacon? We've done that before. Oh, okay. I was gonna. I was just going from the hip on that one. Mm-hmm. Actually, what I was what I was wanting to lean into uh, mm-hmm. was Gene Wilder. Good choice. 
that's that's super easy too. And that's and that's actually gonna come up with part of what we're gonna get into later tonight. It, it's super easy too though. Like uh, Gene Wilder was in Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor. Richard oh, Pryor sure. was yeah, in right. Out of Nights with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, it's too easy. You talk, I said as soon as you said, I was like. You remember he does the movies with yeah, Richard yeah, Pryor, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah okay, but in, anyway, we got that, so give me Well, because we're going to have Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor come up when we uh, get into the John Landis. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But uh, give me another one. All right. Uh, you know, technically, she has been in a movie, so I'm going to go with Jessica Simpson. Okay, okay, I'll, get, I'll give you that one. Jessica Simpson was in... Ah, got it. Jessica Simpson was in The Dukes of Hazzard with... Uh, Sean William Scott. Sean William Scott was in Old School with uh, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell was in Get Hard with Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart was in Meet Day with Eddie Murphy. David Spade. Good one. Very good one, actually. Even even easier. David Spade was in Coneheads with Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd was in Trump. <laughs> Pretty much I every, like I like the first second you yeah. thought about it. Yeah. No, but freaking like uh, no seriously. Though, Anybody like, who had anything to do with SNL was, was a it, really was, short it, jump to Eddie. But yeah, no. But I'm talking about like specifically, so many SNL people are in Coneheads. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, but it has to be that generation. Like if I went with Andy Samberg. He's obviously not in Conan's, but you can still get to him pretty quick. So how about Andy Samberg? I can still get to him. Okay, so Andy Samberg was in, I believe it was Father of the Year. Yeah, Father of the Year mm-hmm. with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler was in Grown Ups, the Grown Ups movies with Chris Rock. Chris Rock was in uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. Fair enough. Yep, there you go. Andy Samberg. <laughs> You know what? I don't remember if he was in Conehead, so if he was, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say uh, Norm MacDonald. He was not in Coneheads, but I still got a connection. I'm uh, sure you do. And Norm MacDonald was in Dirty Work with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle was in the Mendy Professor A. Murphy. <laughs> that was pretty quick. You remember Dirty Work? You, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah dude. Yeah. You kidding me? Um, Freaking uh, Chris Far- Farley? I was about to say, that's one of like, Farley's <laughs> last movies, yeah. I think his very last one was Almost Heroes. It was his very last one. Right. Oh, you know what? Speaking of which, Matthew Perry. Okay. Matthew Perry. Okay. Actually, no, I'm not going to do what well, I think you're trying to give me. Okay, I'll go another route. Matthew Perry was in The Whole Nine Yards with Michael Clark Duncan. Michael Clark Duncan was in The Players Club with Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx was in Dream Girls with Eddie Murphy. There you go. There you go. See? All right. Yeah, I, I know. I know. The, I like as soon as you say them. Sometimes I can figure out the route you're trying to go. I was like, no, nah, <laughs> fuck that. I'm gonna go another route. I like. I like it when you uh, when you surprise me. That's right. Yeah, right. All right. So we got done. We're not those names out. So let's go ahead and pop into our next segment. Uh, what would Busey say? Uh, WWBS. What would Busey say? <laughs> what was that? That was that extra sound effect. Hold on. Here. That was an extra sound effect, folks. Yes, that was uh, that was actually because we're moving into what would Busey say? That's the what would Busey say? <laughs> prompt, sound, prompt. Exactly. Is that what that was? <laughs> <laughs> we have a prompt now. We, we know we have we're we're, but, we're expanding. We but, have prompts. We have. Uh, but but it sounds so happy. <laughs> <laughs> what would Busey say? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it ever happy? I know, but that's funny though. That's just that's such a nice, nice little sound to you know uh, signal some ramblings. (laughs) Some some psychotic ramblings. All right, but let's get into the let's go to the the uh, segment here. So, uh, what what does Busey say about what this week? Well, since uh, no, I'm not gonna go that route because I I I had something planned, but it just it wouldn't be appropriate under the circumstances. So what I'm what I'm going to ask. 
leading into our show later on, what would Busey say about Chicago? Because I really enjoyed our trip to New York last week. Oh, yeah. Well, I can tell you about Chicago. I had the craziest night in Chicago ever. Are you kidding me? There's one particular night where I got stranded in downtown Chicago. Now, keep in mind, I made it to the Union Station there a little later than normal. They had closed down by the time I got there, so I'm stranded there in the middle of downtown Chicago with my fucking luggage, and I have to fucking make my way across the city, and I'm broke. At the time, I didn't have any money on me, and I didn't have a phone, so I had to wait. So I basically just stranded around the goddamn city, got to a couple fights with some hobos. I loitered in a hotel. I believe it was like the Waldorf or one of those type fancy-ass hotels. They didn't didn't even recognize me. I was like, hey, I'm I'm fucking Gary Busey. I don't care. You look homeless. Get out. Like, that's bullshit. You know, so I just wandered around a little bit more, got to another fight with another hobo, and then I ended up in this one really nice club. I went in there, I sat down, and I just chilled out and surveyed. I was like, you know what, I'll just chill in here and maybe have a couple of drinks, wait for the station to open in the morning, and then I'll go where I need to go. So I'm sitting there chilling, I see some females in there, I'm like, yeah, they look good. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <coughs> but then I noticed something very special, there's, uh, there's a lot of guys in here, you know, a lot of guys, and uh, they're dancing with each other. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is an interesting place. And I believe the kicker was uh, the DJ played this one particular song, and I believe the lyrics were, I want to fuck you in the ass. And I was like, whoa, I'm in a gay bar in Chicago, downtown, stranded. I got no place else to go. So I made the best of a good situation. I went out on the dance floor, got felt up a couple times, you know what I'm saying? One dude slipped me his number, and another guy actually tried to kiss me. I ended up like, Bruising his trachea or some shit like that. Ended up uh, back at Union Station at around 5 in the morning. Uh, got to a fight with another hobo. And sit there waiting in the station. I've been up all night. I, station finally opens and then I fall fucking asleep. I stay asleep till about 10 a.m. And then I finally get my train. And I, actually, I was in there filming a movie. I forgot exactly what it was for. But apparently it was, a, it was some sort of film. Uh, maybe, a, I think it was like a snuff film or something. Actual snuff film. I haven't done one of those in like 20 years at that point, but it's pretty fun. Tag of blood. <laughs> I didn't realize Gary Busey was so homophobic. That was based on a real thing, by the way. <laughs> was, uh, Don't admit I, to any felonies. No, no, no. I, I, no, I, I had a weird night in what? Chicago. I had a weird night in Chicago once. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> this is just creating way more questions <laughs> than it's answering. <laughs> Uh, but uh, <laughs> no wonder we're able to get such amazing sponsors. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, here's our one sponsor right now, right before we go into our news. You guys enjoy. Do you like pyramids? Do you like levels? Do you like marketing? Do you like multi-level marketing? Are you sick of always being stuck at the bottom of the pyramid or the top of the funnel? Well then, Crazy Rick's House of Discount Multi-Level Marketing is for you! We have cosmetic MLMs, superfood MLMs, office supply MLMs, CBD MLMs, lingerie MLMs, Tupperware MLMs, blender MLMs, running shoes MLMs, and a full array of sex toy MLMs and more. 
With our patented MLM business plans, we'll show you how to build your MLM sales team with innovations like personal profit, professional dress, positive sales goals, and much, much more. Get on top of the pyramid by building it from scratch. Grow a sales staff by bringing them in with job titles like Jedi, producer, ninja, innovator, and princess unicorn. For only six easy payments of $29.99.99, you can own your very own MLM. That's Crazy Rick's Discount House of Multi-Level Marketing. Call today. Proud sponsors of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. Dropping that news. That was a hell of a sponsor there, buddy. It's a wonderful sponsor. <laughs> These sponsors, man. I'm 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 gonna get an MLM for my MLM tomorrow. <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> All right, but yeah, let's get into dropping that news. Now, this first piece of news actually surprised caught me by surprise, and it actually just debuted just a few hours ago. Uh, apparently. Uh, the great Emilio Estevez, who hasn't done shit in forever. The Mighty Duck Man himself. Is actually coming back to a Mighty Duck series as Gordon Bombay. Uh, according to a tweet uh, from Disney Plus update, uh, Emilio Estevez will be reprising his role as Gordon Bombay in the Mighty Duck series. Uh, you know, a lot of people say that Estevez was what uh, made the movie so memorable himself, and now he's going to be taking a lead role on the show. And, him and Joshua Jackson. And uh, Keenan Thompson. Yeah, Keenan, Keenan definitely carried. Yeah, so apparently the, uh, they announced the revival of a Mighty Ducks, uh, a Mighty Ducks show this past November. Uh, but apparently what's going to happen is after getting kicked off of a the, – the premise of the show is basically after getting kicked out of the junior division, Mighty Ducks team, a 13-year-old and his mom decide to start their own team, finding players, a coach, and a place to stay. And apparently they're going to be getting fucking Gordon Bombay. Now, are there any notes as to whether or not he's going to keep that uh, timely and beautiful goatee? I'm not sure, <laughs> but yeah, but still, it's like 1995 all over. Man. From, from the looks of it, the gist is that Gordon Bombay is going to be instructing a new generation of Mighty uh, Ducks. Man. Look, I'm gonna watch it. I'm not even. Gonna yeah, I'm, I'm with it. Yeah, I'm I, with li- it. I like the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, actually, you know what? I've been been watching binge watching uh, the life according to Jeff Go- or the world according to Jeff Goldblum. Huh? I I do that. He's actually pretty good because he's so like you know he's Jeff Goldblum. He's so like quirky and eccentric. He's but freaking he's, hilarious. But he's so curious. You know, say why? What why? Yeah, why would you do that? Why do you? Like, there's ones on like tattoos. There's one on ice cream. There's one on like shoes. Was, was he in? Was it Thor Ragnarok? Was that him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Grandmaster. Yeah. When, when we were doing the red carpet for that, uh, I was I was doing like some build out and stuff backstage or whatever because they had the big um, premiere over at El Capitan uh-huh. in Hollywood. Yeah. Dude, just listening to him like riff and stuff while they were doing the run through because he emceed it. Yeah, I freaking love that guy. He's hilarious, man. Like, oh, yeah. he's legitimately like fun to watch, no he, matter what yeah. the hell he's doing. He is one of those Hollywood figures, like I said, that is beloved. I mentioned this before. He does a lot of impromptu jazz shows out here in L.A. and a lot of people have met him. Uh, and uh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize he was doing jazz. Oh yeah, he does. He's really, what's he, he play? You see, piano. He's like, a pianist. You've seen his movies, like he's. Fantastic on the piano. I didn't know that was actually him, though. Yeah, that's all him. No, I just figured they were doing that that uh, the it, camera trick thing again where they no, shoot no, him from no, behind no, where you no, can't like, see the and then they shoot someone the, else's like, fingers. Like, I was like, you remember the whole thing in The Fly where he does the little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. That was all him, bro. Oh, shit. Yeah, so we have to watch that again. Yeah. Well, it's great, man. I, I mean, <laughs> hell, maybe he's like our new uh, Thelonious Monk. <laughs> That'd be cool, man. Dude, I'm on board with yeah. that. I like I like good jazz piano. All right, so uh, next up, and this is actually a pretty fun piece of news I saw today. Cheech and Chong are coming back. Yes, this is a great one. And not only are they coming back, 
to doing a horror movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Tommy Chong went to uh, MovieWeb.com and stated he's currently writing a horror comedy for Cheech and Chong, basically around the same, uh, basically trying to do the same like kind of line of like Abbott and Costello. I'm Abbott, Abbott, you know the Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein, Abbott mm-hmm. and Costello me Jack and Hyde. Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. But that type obviously of with the Cheech and Chong yes, twist to it. Very much. All right, so this is an exact quote from Tommy Chong. Uh, you, I'm going to try to do the Tommy Chong voice. Yo, I've been writing a Cheech and Chong horror movie. Yeah, every comedy team after they broke up, they always did a horror movie. I mean, you know, Abbott and Costello Halloween, Abbott and Costello meet the monster, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, they have one. Everybody has a horror movie, so I always wanted to do a horror movie. In fact... We had a reunion tour movie, and I wanted to make that a horror movie, but I didn't have the clout once I had with Cheech. So I couldn't talk to him, into, I couldn't talk him into it. It's a nice genre to play with. You can have a lot of fun with, man, and like, you know, like get out. You know, I like the approach of that, you know? I, I just had a horrible thought. Because mm-hmm. he said every, every comedy duo, when they broke up, they come back and have a horror movie. Yeah. So what if they brought back like David Spade and Chris Farley? Jesus Christ! Or, or like Belushi and Aykroyd? Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, we're, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. so I know yeah. it's fucked. Actually, up. there's something about that that's very similar. We'll I know, to, I know, but I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, like, yeah. I know it's a fucked up thing to say, but no, but we're, they we're both gonna, have to be zombie movies. In exactly. this we're we're going to get into that in a second. <laughs> uh, but actually, apparently, this is not the first time they've been tapped for a horror movie. Apparently, in 2017, uh, some screenwriter named Tom McLolan. Uh, actually pitched a Friday the 13th sequel with Cheech and Chong against Jason. I mean, I'd watch it. I'd watch it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, last piece of news here, and like uh, I actually wrote this today, um, they're doing a movie about, um, especially if you're a pro wrestling fan, this is really going to get you, Yeah. a family about the Von Erics, the legendary Von Erics from Dallas, Texas, the Sportatorium. <laughs> Uh, the Von Erichs of World Class Championship Wrestling in the 80s. Now, if you're a big wrestling fan, World Class Championship Wrestling spawned some of the biggest stars in the history of wrestling. So, like, The Ultimate Warrior, Ravishing Rick Rude, Shawn Michaels, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Mick Foley, they all made their debuts in World Class Championship Wrestling. You know what I'm saying? And then, But the centerpiece of the show was always the Von Erich family, the Von Erich kids. The, the actual uh, establishment itself was owned by Fritz von Erich, who uh, was a big wrestler in the 50s. He was a wrestling Nazi. From Texas, but he's a Nazi. Playing yeah. a Nazi. So, Some and, you know, when, the early day, if you mm-hmm. want to go heal, that's where you want. Exactly. So he, you know... I mean, it's not like today where everyone gets like immediately yeah. sensitive. Like, I mean, yeah. shit, think of Hogan's Heroes. Exactly. That was a damn comedy. Exactly, yeah. It was a different time. Different much, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the Von Erichs themselves, uh, he had uh, several children. The main three, David, Carrie, and Kevin, were mega stars in Texas Mm -hmm. during the early 80s in particular. But, um, unfortunately for this family, a string of horrific tragedies befell this one family. At one point, there were six kids. Now there's only one. And after, you know... It's definitely going to be a drama. Exactly. So after a bunch, you know, they've had, you know... Uh, accidental deaths, su- uh, and a lot of suicides, yeah. uh, more more than average. You know what I'm saying? And like just so, just one tragedy after another after another. It's like, well, how much can one family take, man? But well, that's the other sad thing too. Is I mean, obviously, if you're seeing that much in one family, there's a there's there's a mental health component. Yes. How much of it is going to be, you know, biochemistry and all that kind of stuff? Just it's like it's one of the things I talk about with my wife a lot. Um, 
because you know our interest in pop culture all that kind of stuff her being a therapist and you know people can read whatever they want to in on that with me but mm-hmm. but the, the the reality is like there's I mean doesn't matter if you, you go back to something like uh, Lethal Weapon right yeah. they always portray the, the therapist or the shrink or the psychologist as like you know somebody who's out to either screw up your career or the only only screwed up fucked up people go to talk to them and mm-hmm. it's like the reality is it's actually better to essentially get help. It's like it's like going in and getting a personal trainer in some respects, and because of that stigma, it's a really mm. sad thing, you can end up with a tragedy like this where you lose so many people in one family that mm. gave so much to this industry and, yeah. and put a lot of stuff out there. And yeah. It'd be nice if we could see that start to shift, at least so people can feel okay about getting help and saying, hey, man, I need, need something here. There have already been a couple of documentaries about Devon Eric's family. Yeah. Uh, the WWE did one. ESPN did one. They recently did one on uh, Viceland. Uh, they have a series called uh, Dark Side of the Ring where they chronicle the tragedies of wrestling, and they did a really good episode on Devon Eric's. Uh, so, like, trying to see... Doing this as a movie? Yeah, it's a movie, bro. Like, this, that story did you is see a any, movie. Did you see anything about casting it? No, not yet. Because that's going to be where it's going to make it or break it. Yeah, so far it's just in development, man. I hope they don't screw it up because it, it's a it's a tragic story, but a great story that needs to be told. Exactly. So like, it's, apparently, it's two major wrestling movies in the works. That one and the uh, Ty Phillips Hulkamania one. Yeah, that would yeah, be so, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the Tom Ty Phillips one. Dude, after after yeah. everything he's done the last few years, and I mean, because he's a guy who he obviously knows his way around drama. Watched the Joker, yeah. and he knows his way around comedy. And there's plenty of room for both. Oh my god! In Hulkamania, <laughs> and this is gonna be like. Mid '80s height of Hulkamania, so like the, the the craziness of the WWE. Did they ever say what they're gonna do for uh, uh, for Andre the Giant? That's the one question that actually uh, I posed myself on uh, Belsaverse. I mean, they uh, might my, be able to pull yeah, enough yeah. that old footage. Yeah, my uh, page of uh, Belsaverse on Facebook. If you get a chance, check it out. Uh, and but when you uh, get down there, go to US Hooker, learn yeah, by rugby. Exactly. But the uh, one obvious choice to a lot of people, myself included, would be the Big Show. Because the fact he's pretty much been portrayed as the son, I mean, of, the son, si- the son of Andre or Andre Light, pretty si- much his entire size wise, but his face just isn't there. Yeah, I know yeah, Andre's got such a unique bone he, structure. He would have the prosthetics. You know it's what? The, they're gonna deep fake that shit. That's mm-hmm. what they do. They go back in. They do mm-hmm. digital overlay. Okay, but I mean, look, that'll work. That'll work. I mean, he's got the size for sure. Yes, he does. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So that's uh, dropping that news. Dropping that news. Really I it. stepped on it a little bit. I guess you did. We, we really got to do a prompt. We, so we'll just build one out and so, we just drop so it. So we don't have this issue. We're, we're, well, I don't know, but then people would miss out on all yeah. this fun nah, banter. Yeah, nah, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> now, uh, as I always like to say, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast. Now, last week we told you guys that we were going to be doing a show mainly on a well-known director. Now, we had a couple of choices, which we actually made on last week's show, mm-hmm. and we actually put them on the Belsaverse page, again, on Facebook, and we had the people vote. So our choices were John Landis, Quentin Tarantino, John Carpenter, uh, Joe Dante, Barry Levinson, and Terry Gilliam. Now... I don't uh, think anyone knows those other two directors but me. Yeah, exactly. So, and lying you, but yeah, yeah, but <laughs> like, but actually, me and AJ actually pitched ourselves in there too. We voted for who we would like to see. Yeah, yeah. and um, there was a running three-way tie for a good little bit between Landis, Tarantino, and Carpenter, and Landis won by one vote. Well, one vote. So. See, your vote yeah. counts. Yeah, exactly. Actually, <laughs> my, mine was the first vote. It was somebody else that voted. 
so it wasn't just me. No, but I mean, it's just for the listeners. But yeah, yeah, but yes, your vote, <laughs> yeah, yes, your vote counts. This is what we're going to be doing here. Mine didn't count. Nobody. I think one other person voted for Barry Levinson. <laughs> yeah. Dude, he's got a killer filmography. It's crazy. I, I know. I know. I, I, I get know, it. I, know, I get I it. Know, I know. I'm just saying. You know. <laughs> and then I put up what Landis did. Like, oh, that dude. Yeah. Yeah. As soon, as soon as people are like, oh, okay, Trading Places coming to America. Animal Thrill- House. Thriller. Right. Thriller. He yeah. did. Th- yeah. Yeah. That guy. So. But yes, our uh, discussion tonight is going to be about the director, John Landis. Now, a lot of people, especially of this generation, are not aware of who Mr. Landis is. He's basically kind of, I won't say fallen out of the spotlight, but he's not as revered as, say, people, well, there's, there's, pe- people that were his like, some, contemporaries. There's, you know some, uh, there's some historical stuff we'll get into that, yes. that plays into that as well. But yes. I would say most of the people in our generation probably know his son, Max. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Because Max has been making movies as of late. He's been doing very well with it. And if I remember right, didn't he also write, wasn't it the, uh, it was like the encyclopedia or like the, the dictionary of, of zombies from A to Z, something like that? Something like that. It was, it was yeah. a while back. I remember yeah. my, my buddy uh, Josh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Josh, who's mm-hmm. uh, super into uh, all the same stuff we're into. Mm-hmm. Um, he was telling me about it a few years back. But yeah, like uh, Landis has done a lot of things. He did that uh, Dirk Gently's holistic uh, detective agency on the uh, BBC. Yep. And uh, also he's done movies like Chronicle and the one that a lot of people know recently, Bright, yep. on uh, Netflix. And that's Max Landis, not John. His yeah, kid, Max, Max. Yeah, yeah. And also Max is currently going through some things with uh, sexual assault charges. So yeah, yeah, you know that is me too. He he's been me too. So. Well, uh, it sounds like he me too himself, possibly. Yeah, a lot of people say that, yeah. So, but, uh, J- but let's focus on John. Yeah, so his father... John, John has a completely different set of problems. Exactly. His father, John, actually, was uh, born into a Jewish family in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he was the son of Shirley and Marshall Landis. Uh, his parents actually reco- relocated to L.A. when he was four months old. He pretty much spent most of his childhood out here but he still refers to Chicago as his home and he's apparently a big fan of the White Sox so. well it's proof nobody actually wants to be from LA exactly <laughs> they're all from somewhere else and they want to want to be identified with yeah. that so in terms of the facts though we got the initial fact that he was born etc so so mm-hmm. what we're going to do for the facts here we're going to talk about Mr. Landis himself first and then we're going to get into a collection of his films and we're going to discuss how we got to that little collection a little bit later, but let's go ahead and get into the man himself. Now, uh, when he was a kid, he went to go see The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and that is the movie that pretty much uh, inspired him to become what he is today, a director. Now, this is an actual quote from him. Uh, I had complete suspension of disbelief, really. I was eight years old, and it transported me. I was on that beach, running from that dragon, fighting that cyclops. It really dazzled me, and I bought it completely. So I actually sat through it twice, and when I got home, I asked my mother, Mom, who does that? Who makes the movie? And she said, in a very sophisticated way, the director. And ever since then, he's wanted to be a film director. And he actually, uh, because of his interest in film, he actually started out his career as a mailboy at 20th Century Fox. Uh, he was actually assistant. Uh, he uh, worked uh, several different movies. He tells one great story about like he was like at lunch one day, and he was like uh, sitting there. It was like you know because Hollywood backlight, you see all kinds of different mm-hmm. shit. 
Just, it's like the uh, shit in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure where you see like cowboys walk by. I, I was gonna say if you do uh, the the end sequence in Blazing Saddles when they're in the commissary, mm-hmm. it's like it's all like if you if you can imagine it, mm-hmm. there's somebody walking around dressed like that. If people in a beach movie and then some guy dressed like Hitler. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. weird. But this particular one, he was at a table that was full of apes, particularly because they were filming one of the Planet of the Apes movies. Now, he's sitting there chilling with the apes, eating lunch, and one particular gorilla, uh, orangutan, I believe you said, like, is just sitting there chilling, eating his food, and then somebody comes up to him and says, uh, we're ready for you, Mr. Houston. <laughs> and couldn't find out he was sitting to John Houston, the great director the entire time, who was one, of the, he was one of the apes. And then they asked him why he did that. He said, you do it for the money. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we'll get to doing it for the money in trading places. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the real the real thing that kicked him off in terms of his career was uh at one point he was actually asked well he actually asked what he can do in terms of like uh other things and films and stuff. And his mentor at twentieth Century Fox was a director named Bundy Martini. Yeah. And uh, the uh, director was like, Okay, well uh I'm about to go do Kelly's Heroes, this new movie in uh, Yugoslavia. If you can make it out there, maybe I can find some work for you. So, Mr. Landis, very young Mr. Landis, took what little money he had and basically took a flight to London and rode the rails and hitchhiked to the Soviet Union. Which is crazy to think about. That's insane. He rode the rails, he hitchhiked all the way to the Soviet Union, over the Iron Curtain. Yep. And he made it over there and they put him on there. He was a gopher for the movie Kelly's Heroes. And Kelly's Heroes, have you, have you read the cast of Kelly's Heroes? Oh, yeah. Clint Eastwood, Don Rickles, Carol O'Connor, Telly mm-hmm. Savalas, Harry Dean Stanton. Like, these are, like, all-time great actors, and all of them are on this movie. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah, they're all in this crazy movie, and it's basically like kind of like a, a Dirty Dozen type deal, you know, yeah. this, like, you know, commando unit, et cetera, et cetera, so. It's actually, it's one of one of my, my favorite Eastwood films. Yeah, yeah, I get that, yeah. And he was sitting there, he was a girlfriend, they had him as a stunt double, he was a PA, he was all over the place working on that movie, man. And uh, that's where he met, you know, Donald Sutherland and Don Rickles, who would actually work with him later in a lot of his films. Yep. Yeah. And uh, while he was there, you know, he said, you know what, I'm over here already, this made me some more money. So he actually traveled to Spain and worked on several different movies, particularly Spaghetti Westerns. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, pretty much everything. He was, uh, at one point, he was a dialect coach. He was a stunt double. He was a PA. And he was an actor in a lot of these movies. And uh, he actually met, like, you know, great actors like, you know, uh, he met, he met like actors and directors like you know Sergio Leone and uh, Toshiro Mifune and uh, Charles Bronson and all these other people. And Sergio Leone, I mean, he's <coughs> talk about a director with staying power. Oh my god! I used to have to put in the weeklies this company I worked for before as far as what was going on box office. Mm-hmm. Sergio Leone's films still run in Italy at the cinema. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's still making box office. That does not surprise me at yeah. all. Yeah, but uh, Landis himself worked on movies like El Condor. Once Upon a Time in the West, A Town Called Bastard. He was in a lot of the movies. Yeah. Most of them were actually filmed in Europe and stuff. And actually, I actually looked this up. He's in Death Race 2000, the original. Is he really? Yeah. Uh, Where's he in that? Uh, Sylvester Stallone kills him. Like, no I, 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 believe, I believe that's the first person Sylvester Stallone kills. <laughs> no shit. It's John Landis. If you've never seen that, um, it is so much better than Death Race. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah no, really- it's completely different, yeah. and it's ridiculous. Re- 
ridiculous and campy, yes. and it's 1970s. Like, what the fuck were you David smoking? David Carradine, Sylvester oh, Stallone. <laughs> oh my god, it's such a weird. It's movie. so weird. But but a good movie. It's, it's good. It's, it's dope and movie. It, it's even better now. I know Landis is in it. Exactly. Now Landis himself uh, actually landed his first uh, directing role. His directorial debut, excuse me, was a movie he wrote called Schlock. Mm-hmm. The movie itself is a tribute to you know. You know, exploitation monster movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I think the one particular movie he was a big fan of was a movie called Trog, and it had like uh, Joan Crawford in it. It was like I think it's like a last role. It was like mm. this B horror movie about this like man ape thing or whatever, <laughs> and that's basically what he did. Like, uh, he uh, he actually uh, was in the movie himself. He was Schlock, <laughs> and Schlock in this movie is like a man ape type deal, like a missing link type deal that's going around L.A. terrorizing people. And like he his him in the suit, and he's just like having fun. Apparently, the I think the scientific name for the schlock was Schlockthropus, <laughs> and, and the name Schlock itself is 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 in referring to those type of movies. That's what they call them. That that schlock, that, that, that tr- <laughs> almost like saying that trash. You know what I'm saying? Sh- I wonder if that's Yiddish. Schlock. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's of a Jewish family. Probably, probably. Is, probably yeah, it's Hollywood, so it's probably my, it's my grandma wasn't that Jewish. So yeah, and but. <laughs> The, the the big significance, other than being his first movie, uh, the gorilla suit in the movie was made by a young makeup artist by the name of Rick Baker. Ooh, Ooh right? And this <laughs> if was, you don't know yeah, who Rick yeah, Baker yeah. Oh is, my God. Who, pause yeah. this, go yeah. look it up. The dude is a legend, and that's complete, not even remotely complete com- fucking legend. It's not bro. even remotely close enough to describing the man. Oh my God, goat. Yeah, he is the goat. That's it. He has won more Academy Awards for makeup than any other professional in Hollywood ever. He's amazing. Absolutely oh amazing. I think he had at least, like, I think somewhere between six and eight Oscars. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so, and that's crazy. And then he's gotten to the point now where he doesn't even do makeup no more. He'll consult on shit. I think, he, yeah. the, I think the most recent thing he consulted on was uh, Maleficent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, heard him, uh, I heard him talking about it, and it's just... It's not really worth it to him anymore. Yeah. He'd rather just stay at home, like, work on his own projects. And actually, we'll get into this a little bit when we get to uh, some of the other stuff. But one of the things that was kind of nice is, uh, at least when he was doing uh, Werewolf in uh, in London, yeah, we, we, he, was, yeah. he was working with his wife. Yes, he was. And no, 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 yep. no, 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 yep. no, yep. no, 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 it wasn't his wife. But... Uh, Okay. We'll, get, we'll get into that a little bit later. But if you ever go to... Uh, I had Rick's, always read that it was wife, but you can get no, into no, it with me later. No, it was... No, no, it was uh, uh, if you ever go to Rick's Instagram, mm-hmm. it's fucking dope, bro. Oh, has, I follow it. All he, all, yeah, it. all he does is like do makeups at his house, and like every year he does like the best Halloween of anybody. Like freaking like his Halloween setup that he does, his him and his family go full out mm. for Halloween. They'll recreate... Uh, Entire classic scenes from like movies and TV shows. I think the last one they did was like they did a recreation of the strain at their house. Oh, that's cool. In full makeup. And then another one a year before that, they did uh, the Twilight Zone with the, with the people with the ugly drooping face or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The surgery one, like, uh, uh, like you're ugly, but everybody else is ugly as shit. Like, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. And then I think one, the one that really set it off when he first started his uh, Instagram was that they did a one Halloween where the entire family was some version of the Joker. 
That's yeah. pretty good. It was really cool. There's enough Jokers to do it all. Exactly. They were all like different versions of the Joker. Like the fucking like, I believe he was like, they had a recent version where like the Joker's face was like, he peeled his face off and then wore it as a mask. It was, it was yeah. so dope, man. But yeah, check out Rick Baker's uh, Instagram, man, if you ever get a chance. 100%. But yeah, they met on that particular movie and like I said, it started as a, they started a long time relationship between them. Now, the movie itself actually caught the attention of Johnny Carson. And as a result, John Landis was actually a guest on The Tonight Show as like a 21-year-old kid talking about the movie. Apparently, John, Johnny loved it because he's always <laughs> so silly. He's like, yeah, this is funny. This is really good stuff. And like John is on The Tonight Show talking about this movie, you know what I'm saying? That he, uh, yeah, it, like that he, uh, he, uh, he basically sorry. bootstrapped it. Yeah, it was a labor of love. I'm sorry, I don't know what the hell happened there. That's, but, a, <laughs> that's but, all right. I jumped in with it. Yeah, but it was a labor of love there. And uh, it's since it was a failure when it was initially released, but it's since you know gained a cult following uh, because of people who are fans of his movies. He 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 terms the movie as terrible. Well, but, but I mean that's the that's the the artist, the filmmaker side of it coming back around. I, I had uh, Tom Mankiewicz used to tell us that no movie's ever finished. At some point, you just abandon it in post production. Basically, because I mean it's the truth. Like you, I've grabbed grab grab Spielberg, grab I mean pick a guy. Pull out their opus, mm-hmm. ask him, say, "Hey, uh, Spielberg, do you think Schindler's List is done?" And he'll point out five hundred things he wants to change. Yep, because that's just that's just the nature. That's how those guys are. Yeah, and because of his appearance on the Tonight Show, he actually got uh, hired to do his next movie, which is a favorite of mine, the Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> so ridiculous. The Kentucky, it's good. Fr- yeah, the Kentucky Fried <laughs> Movie. For those of you who don't know, is a uh, sketch comedy movie. Basically, it's basically just a bunch of sketches put together as a movie. And the actual writers of the movie were the Zucker brothers, uh, David and I forgot the other name, but um, I think it's like Jim Zucker or something like that. No, no, yeah, it's like, da- like David. Yeah, da- no, it's Jim Abrams, uh, David Zucker, I forgot the other Zucker, but they uh, saw John Landis on The Tonight Show and they were like around the same age and they're like, yeah, this uh, this guy here, he seems pretty cool. He, yeah, he's young, he's made a movie, you know what I'm saying? He's about our age, let's, let's talk to him, see if he can make a movie for us. So basically, what it was, they had a. Um, theater at the time, the Kentucky Fried Theater out here in L.A. that they made themselves, and they would write sketch comedy, really silly stuff, and uh, they uh, got John to uh, do a movie based on their skits, and uh, it was basically satirical humor, like, you know, Monty Python, or like the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which was popular at the time, or SNL that just broke out when this movie came out, and because of the fact, like, like I said, this is the first movie, not only a uh, first major movie, in terms of John Landis, because, like, Schlock was cool, but it didn't get the full release. This got the full release. And it's also the first movie of the Zucker Brothers, who will go on to make some of the best comedies ever made. Airplane. Yep. The Naked Gun. You know what I'm saying? Top, uh, Hot Shots. It's, it's all of them. You know what I'm saying? That that team. You know what I'm saying? So, the, man, big, big ups to the Zucker Brothers, man. And, like, it's, you see it in the movie, it's so weird. Like, they have so many weird, like, little spots or whatever. There's, like, a lot of it is, like, parodies, like, of movie trailers. I think this one is called Catholic High School Girls in Trouble. And it's, like, all, it was just one scene with, like, this chick naked in the shower. Like, you know, breasts are just pumping them against the, the, uh, the glass the glass or whatever. It's so fucking... It's, 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 it's gross It's basically funny. the movie equivalent of a collection of short stories. More or less, Yeah. And uh, actually, but it has some pretty big names in it doing the skits. It just, it just doesn't have, what I'm saying is it just doesn't have a, a standard, like, narrative through line. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. 
Because um, even that weird one was a movie 43 or something like that, even though it was like weird and didn't make a lot of fucking sense, no. it still technically had a narrative through line. True. No, no, this is just, just a bunch of skits put together as a movie. Yeah. But like I said, if you get a chance, check it out. And uh, one skit I love in the movie was uh, this one about... Uh, they would have like a romance. It was like this black couple, and they were like sitting there about to get it on. It's like this romance uh, record that, he, that the guy puts on, kind of like to set the mood. Right. And this guy pretty much is instructing him on like how to, you know, get it ready, get her ready for making love and stuff like that. And then at one point, uh, she goes to the bathroom to put in a birth control device, and then they had this like a uh, kind of like Looney Tunes type thing play as he's waiting, like it's like. And she, it just keeps going because she's taking forever. And then, and we're back. <laughs> and then at one point, they're, you know, disrobed. They're not completely naked. They just like down to the underwear. And then, just as about to get it in, the dude gets up. He's like, a one. And then the record says, one problem that can happen in moments like this is the problem of uh, premature ejaculation. <laughs> so the guy gets up ashamed, and the girl's like, okay, whatever. But then, like, when that happens, this record comes equipped with Big Jim Slade and this big ass buff ass black dude comes through. He's like posing his muscles and shit. <laughs> big Jim is a running back for like uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, and <laughs> and he takes the girl and then you know he goes off and makes has his way with her. <laughs> so and then it comes so find ridiculous. out it comes to find out that big black dude was actually uh, Manny Perry, leg- legendary stunt man. Oh shit! And he was Lou Ferrigno's stunt double on The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, it makes sense. Exactly, big, really huge dude. You know what I'm saying? And he's been in, a, he's been a stunt double in God knows how many movies. Yeah, no. he's been around. He's still working today. Yeah, you know what I'm saying so. But that's one. And then, like I said, the names that's in the movie, like Bill Bixby and Donald Sutherland's in it. George Lazenby's in it. Yeah, he called jo- in every favor he ever had, and the, then some. The George Lazenby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he earned a V. But yeah, it's a very it's a very good movie. Check that out. But yeah, that was actually came out as somewhat successful. But after that, because of the su- success of that movie, he got National Lampoon's Animal House, mm. and then that steamrolled to his other hit movies like The Blues Brothers, American World from London, and a couple other ones that we're going to talk about in uh, full detail. But yeah, he. You know, he was working for a good while there, you know what I'm saying? And uh, he actually has a couple of uh, trademarks that he does in his movies, you know what I'm saying? One thing he likes to do, and I notice this a lot, he likes to cast other directors in yeah. the movies. Like they have, a, they have like a lot of cameos and stuff. Yeah, Frank Frank Oz, which we'll get to. He shows up in two of the ones we're going to discuss tonight. Frank Oz is probably the one that he uses the most. And that was, actually, that was another one of the trademarks I was about to say. But yeah, Frank Oz... Either appears himself in the movie, or there is mention of Frank Oz in a lot of. There's a reference, yeah. Yeah, in uh, two particular ones that um, that I like because he wasn't in either movie. There's airport scenes in uh, two Landis movies, Into the Night, and Coming to America, and there's always a uh, announcement in the uh, on the in the airport like yeah, it's like uh, Mr. Frank Oskowitz, please use the uh, please come to the white courtesy phone. Uh, Mr. Frank Oskowitz, which is Frank Oz's real name. Yeah, yeah. So, and he's always doing that shit. And then they, he always likes to use the the song "The Girl from Ipanema." Yeah. Well, that's 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 actually one of my favorite moments in Blues Brothers when they're in the elevator and this all this this that's the music that's playing. The girl from Ipanema. And there's a yeah, and there's a bunch of like uh, director cameos and spies like us. Like yeah, there's a ton. Yeah, like if you go that to, one just barely missed it out. Yeah, but uh, the the drive-in scene where like all the guards are directors. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Cohen brothers, Sam Raimi, yep. young Sam Raimi, Marty Brest. You know, all these people are like whoa, <laughs> like 
<laughs> it's weird to see it too. And then you go to like Beverly Hills Cop Three. Joe Dante plays a cop, mm-hmm. and then it was like Jerry Goldsmith, and like <laughs> he has the Sherman Brothers, the dudes that he, wrote, wrote the songs for Disney. He basically calls all his director friends who aren't on a project. He's like, "What are you doing today? Okay, you're in my movie. Get over here." <laughs> George Lucas has a cameo in a fucking. Um, There's a. We're gonna get to Beverly Spielberg too. Yeah, yeah, he has a cameo in one of Landis's movies too. We're gonna get to Spielberg in two different things, but yeah, mm. yeah. And another one he likes to do is uh, he likes to cast. Um, it was an actor singer named Stephen Bishop. Yeah, yeah, he likes he's to, been around. Yeah, he he usually likes to uh, cast Stephen Bishop because he's a friend as the charming guy. That's always his credit in whatever movie he's in. He's in Kentucky Fried Movie. And, I didn't yeah, it. yeah, he's in, and then the most famous one would be from Animal House, which we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. But uh, Stephen Bishop's most famous thing would be the song from Tootsie. Oh yeah, yeah, something's yeah. telling me it might be you. <laughs> it's telling me it might be you all of my life. <laughs> <laughs> nothing you you haven't lived till you've had JD try to serenade you in his backyard. <laughs> you didn't know I knew this one. <laughs> no, I really didn't. Oh yeah, this kind of scared now. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> also, there's another thing he likes to do uh, in his movies. He always likes to feature the image or actually put in a large gorilla somewhere in the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, him and Rick Baker have a thing for gorillas. They're fun. Yeah, they're fun to see, but like, uh, there's like big gorilla. Uh, well, no, a, but I mean, for Rick, they're fun to do. There's a gorilla. There's a lot of detail and the, a lot of expressiveness. There's a gorilla in the Kentucky Fried movie. The suit was made by Rick Becker, and Rick is the gorilla in the Kentucky Fried movie. <laughs> Sounds about right. Rick was King Kong. No shit. Yeah, the uh, 70s Dino De Laurentiis one with Jeff Bridges and huh. uh, Jessica Lane. Rick was the guy in the suit, King Kong. I didn't realize that. It was him. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, I think there's like a. A, a gorilla and the incredible shrinking woman it was also Rick uh, but we're gonna get into that a little bit later that's that's another one of those landest things uh, and he always how, he always does like a little clip thing at the end of his movies where like you show like the actors like you know doing blooper stuff yeah and I mean he was, was kind of one of the first guys to do that exactly yeah I mean that was that was definitely a major like Landis innovation mm-hmm. and one thing he really likes to do uh, in his movies is have the characters break the fourth wall and they always like make Full eye contact yeah, with they, the audience they, or the they, camera. Exactly. They yeah. He, he likes wrecked into the lens. Yeah, right into the lens. But it always makes it it's always makes whatever scene it is funnier. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I wanna list a couple, but we'll wait till we get there. We'll wait we'll wait till we get there, yeah. Uh and uh one thing that's really uh, notable about Mr. Landis is his frequent collaborations and the people he did them with. In particular, Dan Aykroyd, mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy, John Belushi, and Michael Jackson. You know what I'm saying? Those are with the, all those guys a lot. A lot. You know what I'm saying? And they and everything they made together from for the most part, stellar. Yep. Yeah. So good kudos to him. He also uh, likes to feature some scene in any of his movies where a full song is played, which is not regular. Yeah, you don't get lot. that as often. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he'll just like he just let the whole song play. You know what I'm saying? A lot of, a lot of directors don't do that. You know what I'm saying? And uh, again, he often works with Rick Baker. Aside from Schlock, they did a couple other movies together American mm-hmm. Werewolf, Coming to America, and Thriller, mm-hmm. among other things. And uh, also, have you ever heard of the uh, channel Trailers from Hell on YouTube? No. Oh, I, I thought we talked about this. No, we haven't talked about this. Trailers from Hell is this great uh, channel on YouTube, uh, ran by Joe Dante. Uh, found I think founded by Joe Dante, where like 
these different directors come on and talk about their favorite movies. And they talk about the trailers for those movies and they describe like what the movie's about and like just watching the trailer like as fans, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, this this guy here, this actor did this, whatever. John Landis has pretty much his own playlist of different ones. And the thing about that makes John Landis is different from all the other directors is he likes to give like a play name and then say, Hey, this is trailers from hell. Like one example is, Hi, I'm first lady Michelle Obama and this is trailers from hell. <laughs> He'll always do like a different okay. name every I time. Got you, you know I got you. And uh, one, uh, one I saw recently that he did wasn't recently, but like I think he did Citizen Kane. He did like uh, one of the Planet of the Apes movies because he actually is in one. He's yeah, in, he's in one of the Planet of the Apes uh, as the nanny. Right. <laughs> a gig's a gig, man. An ape nanny. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only acting credit I have is like Gangster Number Two. <laughs> I played that way too times. <laughs> Gangster, thug, bouncer, I was, I, was a, I was a Russian mobster. Mm. It no. was ridiculous. I, I was younger then. Don't judge. I, I think I think <laughs> what the usual direction I get, well, it's not an official direction, but it's pretty much implied whenever I get in a gig where I'm playing like a bouncer or anything like that. And I think it should be the title of, if I ever do an autobiography, I think it should be the title of the book, Stand Here, Be Black and Scary. <laughs> That's basically what they want Dude, me to do. That's a gift. Stand you here. You gotta use that. Stand here. Be black and scary. Oh my god. Crazy, isn't it? But it's pretty much what no. You but I do. can totally see it. I've heard that. I've I've seen that shit before. Stand right here. Be black and scary. Okay. <laughs> there was. I still remember from when I was a kid. There was this guy. His name was uh, Joseph Jennings. Mm-hmm. He used to. Uh, he'd go around. He's doing like you know all this like. Uh, uh, like motivational speaking, that kind of thing, trying to keep kids out of gangs, all this stuff. And uh, he, we were in Utah. I was like 14 with my parents and everybody, and he's coming out to do this thing. He's going to talk at our church. So we were going out to dinner with him beforehand, and uh, he puts on this hoodie, flips up over his head, and he goes, let's go scare some white folks. <laughs> he jumps out of Salt Lake City, walking around, scare the shit out of white people. I love it. Before we went into, I think it was like Tony Roma's, to go have dinner. Nice. Freaking hilarious, but I totally get it, man. I mean, I've, I, I I've that. seen and heard that shit over and over and over again, especially out here. Exactly. So, and uh, going even more personal, uh, he is married and has been married for well over thirty years to Deborah Nadum and Landis, uh, costume designer out here. And actually, at one point, she was the president. Actually, actually twice, she was the president of the Costume Designers Award uh, Guild. And she is the director of the uh, David C. Copley Center for the Study of Costume Design at UCLA. And that right there, the two of them being married in Hollywood for 30 years. 30 plus years. In and of itself is is like, I mean, talk about needing a Lifetime Achievement Award in this town. Exactly. I mean, that's that's true love. And she has stuck with him through thick and thin, brother. Yep, and he's stuck with her. Exactly. And uh, they've uh, produced two children. Max, which we talked about, yep. and a daughter, Rachel, who is not in Hollywood, but like uh, you can tell the family resemblance, man. Like, like if you ever see interviews with any of them, they're very excitable people. The Landis mm-hmm. family. They, not only that, I mean, they're, they're like very hey, high strung. They where, love life and they're enjoying it, and they love movies. <laughs> just oh like, yeah. Oh my, not only that, there were ten of them. Oh my god. <laughs> and all of them sound the same. They look the same and all sound the same. So mm, very, very slim profiles, all of them, and you know they're passionate about movies. The ones that are in the industry. Mm-hmm. The daughter, Rachel, kind of does her own thing, so kudos to her. And, of course, uh, Mr. Landis is a uh, professed atheist, mm-hmm. does not believe in God, is his own get-down, 
and the family apparently lives somewhere in Beverly Hills. Like, uh, I've seen, I've seen personally, I've seen Max at a couple parties. Uh, there's one little thing that it's like a pop up party called Party McFly. Mm-hmm. They usually do it on Sunset, and I saw him there a couple times. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he like, and then it's a weird party because the DJ sucks, but they'll the DJ will throw in like you know. Like cartoon theme songs and mm-hmm. shit like that, and it, it gets to go, it gets the crowd going crazy. I, think, I remember one particular time they were doing like Ducktales. I was like, yeah, everybody just going, Woo! you know, <laughs> it was crazy, man. Like, how you go from like Little John to Ducktales? I'm like, okay, you gotta read the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now this particular one we have to get into now. Wait, hold on. Yep. Are, wait, are we, are we still on Landis? Are we jumping in? Are you gonna do Twilight Zone? Yes, we are. Okay, All right, I want to make sure we're gonna do that before we jumped into our movies. So. Exactly. This is. This is probably the single biggest problem that he had and has career-wise, and it's probably impacted a lot of his additional career. opportunities for his career. Basically, yeah. Like, like I mentioned at the beginning of it, like there's a reason why he's not mentioned as as, fer- as fervently as, say, Spielberg or Joe Dante or people like that who made movies around the same time that were also successful. Um, there was one particular incident where he got hired to uh, direct a segment of the Twilight Zone, the movie. Now, the, let's talk about the little, little bit, little bit about the movie itself. The movie again is an ensemble piece based on the classic series, the Twilight Zone, which a lot of the directors in this film are fans of, and a lot of people who are actually in Twilight Zone episodes are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was four directors: John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante. And George Miller, I believe, who was the the Mad Max guy, so they all directed a segment of the movie, all about thirty minutes apiece, and each of them are either based on an episode of Twilight Zone, or uh, one of them. Only one of them was an original thing. Well, two of them. The post, the beginning credit scene is original. Uh, the first thing is original, and uh, I believe the Spielberg thing is original. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are actually based on stories from the original episodes. Yeah, exactly. So um, now Landis himself directed two segments in this movie. Oh, uh, well, a segment and a half, pretty much. The beginning segment, which is uh, basically two guys driving along a uh, dark country road at night, and the two guys are frequent frequent collaborator Dan Aykroyd mm-hmm. and Albert Brooks. And at one point, they're sitting there, you know, chilling with each other, like listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival, and then apparently the tape, the tape goes to shit. So they need to make conversations, so they start talking about their favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They're talking about, like, you know, special episodes, like the um, the, the, the Nightmare 20,000 Feet one. They talk about the one with uh, Burgess Meredith, where he uh, was, like, the last man on Earth, mm-hmm. and then his glasses broke. Yep. And that one was really fun. Like, just the different, like, fucked yeah. up episodes of The Twilight Zone. And then the segment ends with uh, Dan Aykroyd going to Albert Brooks and say, "Hey, do you want to see something really scary?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." Like, all right, pull the car over. What? Pull the car over. Trust me. And then they do it, and then like, it's real dark. And Albert looks at him and says, "Scare me. You ready?" Like, yeah. Dan turns around. Uh, his face was away from Albert, and Albert's looking at him like, "What are you doing?" Turns around, turns into a monster, and kills him. <laughs> And that's the beginning of the movie. Then it gives it to the yeah. yeah. And then and then the narration in the movie was actually done by Burgess Meredith. Oh yeah, yeah. Who uh, did who did a lot of very well known Twilight Zone episodes. Yep. Well, they, they have to keep it in the family. Yeah. And then uh, Landis's uh, segment, his full segment, is the first segment of the movie, and the title of it is Time Out. Now, the actual segment itself featured uh, veteran actor Vic Morrow. 
this uh, it starts out basically as these guys in a bar. They're you know having drinks and whatnot, and uh, Vic Morrow's character comes in. Apparently, he just got patched up on a promotion by a black person, and he vents his frustration about black people and pretty much a racist tirade. Mm-hmm. And then he goes not only just in the the black people, then he goes into uh, Jewish people, and then he goes into the Vietnamese people and whatnot. And then at one point, there's a black person there, like, "Hey, man, what is wrong with you?" Like. Uh, you need to chill out on that. And then he just gets more and more despondent to the point where he's actually asked to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, the Vic Morrow character leaves, and as soon as he leaves, he pretty much enters this Groundhog's Day-like time warp. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, he, he's in a bar, you know, and wherever. When he walks out the door, he's all of a sudden in Nazi, in Nazi Germany during World War II. And the weird part about it is he basically experiences... The ex- the racial experiences of all the people he talked about. So he he there's a segment where he's like living as a Jew. Mm-hmm. There's another one where he's living as a black man, and there's another one where he's living as a uh, Vietnamese. Now the first one uh, is he's in Germany. He's being hunted down by some Nazis. Every time is every time it looks like he's about to be killed, he's transported to the next thing. So like he's about to be killed in Germany. Next thing you know, he's transported to the south, and. Uh, He's about to be hung by the Ku Klux Klan, one of which was John Larroquette. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and then as soon as he's about to get hung, now he's in Vietnam, you know what I'm saying? And then the segment actually ends uh, with the character being in a uh, in a train, about to be trucked off to a concentration camp, mm-hmm. Jewish style. And then the weird part about it is he looks out the window and he sees his friends at the bar, and he sees the bar again. And he's yelling to his friends, hey, hey, come get me, help, 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 but... They can't hear him. They can't hear him, and he's being carted away to his death, pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, now, the actual, uh, yeah, the actual uh, incident in in, in uh, hand here that happened during that particular shoot, um, there was a helicopter crash. Well, there was there was a scene mm-hmm. where the hero, yeah, uh, is is running, and he's he's actually holding uh, two babies. So it's it's a war sequence. There's, there's bombs going off. There's helicopters. It's a Vietnam War sequence, essentially. Yeah. And um, they, uh, they had an actor um, running with two actual Vietnamese kids in his arms. It was, they, they it was, were, it was Vic Morrow, and the mm-hmm. two children were Renee Chen, age six, and uh, Micah Den Lee, age seven. They were brother and sister, and yeah. uh, they're, they're running across this area. It's at night. Um, and uh, John kept calling, John Landis kept calling in to have the chopper coming lower and lower and lower for the shots. Um, the incident that happens that changes everyone's world was the, the helicopter came in too low, and if I remember right, um, it didn't clip wires. I think it got hit by a pyrotechnic. I have the actual report and, uh, here whenever you're ready. Yeah, why don't you get into that, how, how it ended up crashing into him and the children. Okay, so uh, what happened is, again, the deceased, the deceased people were trapped under the actual helicopter itself when it crashed. Now, a report from the National Transportation and Safety Board in October 84 said the cause of the crash was attributed to the detonation of debris-lidden high-temperature special effects explosions, which were too close to a low-flying helicopter. This led to the damage to one uh, rotor blade and the delamination uh, due to the heat of the, another rotor blade and actually uh, attributed to the separation of the uh, helicopter's tail rotor assembly and the uh, uncontrolled descent of the actual helicopter itself. So uh, a, a special effect went off. It hit the fucking tail rotor. That's pretty much all they wrote. 
and then the uh, th there was there was some additional stuff that caused some issues here. So on the one one front, people who don't understand film and television haven't followed this. Um, for time and memoriam, the safety officer on set uh, has been the first assistant director, the first AD. Mm -hmm. um, also, the UPM, the unit production manager, those two people are essentially legally considered to be uh, the two people in charge of safety. So they're the two people whose job it is to tell a director, tell a producer, tell anyone what you want to do is too dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, obviously, it didn't happen. Uh, what makes it worse is, uh, in you know, because we've been doing movies in, in Hollywood for over 100 years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, we learned a long time ago that exploitation of children, that kind of thing, can be an issue. We can get into Coogan accounts and all the rest of that some other mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're required by law to have uh, a social worker on set. And that social worker is referred to as a studio teacher. Now, contrary to the name, they don't teach the kids anything. Their job is to act as an advocate on behalf of the children only. There are certain rules about the number of hours children can work, when they can and can't be present on set, and this is meant specifically to guard for the physical and emotional safety of the children. Yeah. Um, and in this case, they actually lied to the studio teacher, told yeah. her earlier that these kids had gone away, mm -hmm. that they'd sent them home for the day, the studio teacher left. Meanwhile, they were actually hiding in a trailer. They brought them back because... You know, it took them longer to set stuff up. They didn't want mm -hmm. to ruin their production day, so they were going to get the shot no matter what. Yeah, and uh, actually a couple things to add to that. Uh, there was a couple of complaints earlier in the shoot of the explosions themselves being too hot and too big. Um, a lot of extras wouldn't complain to, like, the 80s and you know, people like that. It was, like, it's too close to our face. It's way too hot. And apparently some witness said uh, letting, that Landis, this is a witness saying it, that Landis said, you ain't seen nothing yet. That he's gonna make it. He's gonna make it bigger. Now they attributed the actual cause, another cause itself, the closeness of the of the helicopter to the special effects explosions was due to a lack of communication and coordination between the pilot and the film director John Landis, who was in charge of the filming operation. Now going back to the kids themselves, number one in terms of like child labor laws, they were not supposed to be on set after 10 p.m. They were mm -hmm. there like two in the morning. And also the fact that uh, they're not supposed to be in scenes that had heavy explosions, which they were. Well, and then a third thing I'll throw out there, having, in fact, I think the second or third film I ever worked on, it was a short film. Um, if you have an actor running, which he was, you're not supposed to have them actually holding another person, right? I mean, if you want to have an adult piggyback or something, you can talk about that. that technically, you're starting to get into stunt work and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're running, and I actually saw firsthand why we do it this way, because our actor slipped, yeah. um, you're supposed to be carrying a doll, a dummy, something else, so that way if you fall, if you drop it, you're not going to you know, potentially cripple the kid, or in this case, if something happens like this, you're not going to get the kids killed mm -hmm. in addition to your actor, which, again, bringing yeah. it in too low, too close, all those horrible things. From what I read, Vic uh, Morrow and one of the children were decapitated and one of the other children was actually trapped under the hel in helicopter and suffocated. So. Yeah. Now, um, as a result of this unfortunate incident, uh, Landis and four other crew members were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, uh, at the end of like nine months between 1986 and 1987, Landis and the uh, crew members were acquitted and discharged. The parents of the children were awarded $2 million each in an out-of-court settlement, but in terms of the real, I won't say the real damage, but the damage was done to his reputation. It was basically well, so there, there's there's two things to keep in mind. Um, as far as I, I was I was told and taught, and I, I, I'll be honest, I haven't done the background work, so somebody can find me and be like, hi, you're wrong. 
Um, from what I understand, the first AD and the UPM never worked again, certainly not in those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of a marked change you've seen um, in more recent years. I think it was, I want to say 2012, when they were doing the Allman Brothers pick. Yeah. This would have been a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they actually went and shot on some train tracks that not only were they not permitted on, but they've been told they weren't allowed to shoot on because mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were going to gorilla it and do that kind of a thing. Um, and they got, I believe it was uh, 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 one of their prop uh, masters or one of their prop workers uh, got hit by a train and killed. Mm-hmm. And the big change you'll see is not only were they charged, um, but the UPM, the first city, and the director all got jail time. Yeah. Um, which I think is really kind of one of those things that it needed to shift and it needed to change. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for far too long, there's been a lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Bill Dill, uh, who was one of my teachers, um, in fact, I think if I remember right, he was the, the first black guy I ever admitted to the ASC. Mm-hmm. So respect Bill Dill, love that guy. But he told us from, the, from day one, he said, the most disgusting thing you can ever see or ever put on a film is in loving memory of or in dedication mm-hmm. to because somebody died. He said, at the end of the day, we're playing make-believe guys. We're, we're, making a, we're making a movie. Like, yeah, you want to tell your story. You want it to be a good experience for the audience. You want to engage them. But none of this shit is worth somebody dying for. Yeah. And so I think that was kind of the, the holdover. And even though it took a lot longer, because when we go through his filmography and you look at it, you'll see, I mean, even today, you know, the man's still working. He's, he, I think his most recent credit was an episode of Franklin and Bash as a director. Mm-hmm. And he's he, just and he was never, like a, yeah he was like an in-house director on the show Psych. Yeah, he's done stuff for them, and he's still around. He's still doing some stuff, but he's never gotten back to that same level because, mm-hmm. you know, one way or another, you, you you gotta gotta pay for some of those mistakes, especially if those mistakes are costing people their lives. Yes, I mean this is what one of my other good buddies always always used to say. Yeah, this is uh, this is basically blue collar work with white collar pay. Yeah. It's dangerous. We yeah. play with electricity. We play yeah. with big shit. Mm-hmm. You get into stunts, you gotta gotta take it serious. Now, uh, this incident in particular, the trial itself, led to the uh, dissolution between him and Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Now, um, they were close friends. Which, uh, which at, actually yeah. happened, yeah. just so we can keep the, the chronology, Yeah. this happened in 83. Yeah. Right after that, he immediately went over, actually, I think it might have been 82, if I remember right, but he went straight from that into trading, trading places. places. That, that's and actually so the, notes, Yeah, because yeah. I say, because the trial didn't occur until 86, so this was years after. Yeah, but uh, at the time, they, they were friends because of the experience on trading places, and mm-hmm. they did a couple other things together, uh, low-level low, low, uh, low stuff. Uh, and uh, Landis actually wanted Eddie Murphy there to testify as a character witness on his behalf, or at least show up at the trial to show support. And uh, but Eddie refused, and um, Eddie Murphy actually said uh, about his conflict with Landis in an interview with Playboy. He said, uh, "As it turned out, John always resented that I hadn't gone to his uh, Twilight Zone trial. I never knew that. I thought we were cool, but he had been harboring it for a year. Every now and then, he would make little remarks like, you 'You didn't help me out. You know, you didn't realize how close I was to going to jail. I paid it no. I, I never paid it any mind. And then he also." subtly indicts Landis about the accident, uh, accident himself. He said, I don't want to say who was guilty or who was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at 12 o'clock at night when there's uh, where there aren't supposed to be kids working and you say action, you have to take some sort of responsibility. So my principals wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. That's just the way I am. I said, quote from Eddie Murphy. Well, and, and something you're kind of brushing up against there, too, is the relationship, right, between an actor and a director. 
it's entirely based on trust. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the greatest actors out there. I don't I don't care who it is. In fact, we get into it one of these days. Tom Hanks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best things that I ever learned and got to see uh, with uh, with Tom Mankiewicz when he was teaching us in class was. Again, pick whoever you think the greatest actor is. Mm-hmm. He's got a director somewhere who's got footage of him or her looking like a dipshit. Yeah. Just looking ridiculous and looking bad. And, you know, the angle was off. The timing was off. Something somewhere in there didn't work. And, and when it comes to the director-actor relationship, you're trusting and, and you have to trust 100% that what you're being told to do is going to work and it's going to ultimately lead to results that are going to make you happy. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the director has to trust because they're putting their career in your hands that you're going to be able to give them what you want. Yeah. And so when this fundamental aspect of trust gets broken the way that it was, yeah. it very seldom, if ever, goes back together. And uh, this also led to the dissolution of his relationship with Steven Spielberg. They were yep. close friends at that point. But because of the incident itself and how it drastically affected the Twilight Zone movie and pretty much Hollywood in general... Steven Spielberg pretty much disconnected himself from John Landis. Uh, never spoke of him again, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, we hated to bring it down like that, but it's, it, it's, 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 impo- it's important to understand yeah. when we get into the rest of it because when we go mm-hmm. through the list yeah. of the absolute, you know, yeah. powerhouse yeah. films that this guy was knocking out. And you'd be like, why? Why, why wouldn't that talk about like, this guy he, more? Yeah, I mean, you, you start to have the question. Because, I mean, basically, if you look at it, mm-hmm. he was on a comedic train not that dissimilar from, you know, the box office train that Spielberg was on. Oh, it was just hit yeah. after hit after hit. I mean, yes. it's, it's where you start to look at other movies, 80s, 90s, that were comedies. You're like going, why wasn't he involved? Like, exactly. why wasn't he involved in Coneheads? Right. right? Like, you start to see stuff like that. And if you mm-hmm. don't understand... All of the politicking, all of the the absolute tragedy. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things, and you know, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty or whatever. I mean, you almost wonder if uh, if if he had done something else in terms of keeping them alive, or even after the fact when when stuff went bad, mm-hmm. if he'd have taken responsibility in a different way. If there could have been another road back for him, I mean, you mm-hmm. never know. It's it's crying over spilled milk at this point, but. Mm-hmm. We had to get it out the way. Now that everyone knows, we can jump into uh, yes, the stuff yeah. about him and his career that still yeah. makes us smile and that we can all still enjoy today. Yeah, so we do have some uh, trivia about Mr. Landis. Uh, early in his career, we mentioned that he worked as a stuntman in some movies. And his specialty was horse falls. Uh, he directed music videos for Michael Jackson, in particular two of his biggest ones, mm-hmm. Thriller and uh, Black or White. Which is hilarious for other reasons we'll get to. Exactly. And uh, Black or White actually has a small cameo from John Landis in it. Because like, he's uh, at the end of the, the morphing scene where you see the black girl dancing. Yeah. You see the director come up, cut, cut, brilliant. That was wonderful. That's John Landis. So uh, he once worked as a parking attendant out here in L.A. Uh, his favorite, one of his favorite movies is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from 1972. And he admits that uh, that movie inspired a gag in an American world from London the dream within a dream within a dream thing. Mm-hmm. And apparently that did that in that movie. Uh, his uh, close friend, uh, George Lucas, actually offered um, John Landis the role of the director in Howard the Duck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then he read the, well, Landis read the script and saw that there was like a bunch of car tra- car crashes at the end of it. He's like, no, nah, it's too similar to the Blues Brothers. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do that. Um, five of his films were nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, the Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, yep. The Blues Brothers, and American Werewolf in London, and Trading Places. Uh, 
Animal House actually made the list at number 36. How did Coming to America not make that list? That's what I want to know. I'm, I'm what the, the hell? I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at it. I'm saying the same thing to myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, um, and also he says himself, like, the scariest film movie to him ever made is a toss-up between the original Ch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Exorcist. Hmm. So, um, also... Just, just as yeah. a quick aside, what, yeah. what do you think the scariest is? Ever? Yeah. The movie that scared me the most. Uh, as an adult, none of this kid shit. As an adult? Mm, I can't really single out one movie as the scariest movie of all time. I really can't. Uh, like, there's a lot of movies that kind of like, I like, there's like, I like jump scares in them, but like, you know, I'm an adult now and I can look at the movie and like, yeah, this is bullshit. I can, uh, I know the filmmaking of it, but like some, certain ones that like the, like the ones that are like based on real stories, those get to me. You know what I'm saying? Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Amityville Horror, stuff like that. You know, based on real stories. You know what I'm saying? Those stuff, that, that kind of gets to me, but like werewolves and decapitation and shit like that, not really. Did you ever see Quarantine? Yeah, I did. That one, that one's the only one that ever made me turn on the lights at night. The one in... Because that yeah. end sequence? Yeah. Holy shit, dude. Yeah, I got you. That, I, I literally had to go watch the behind the scenes, mm-hmm. see how the, the character actor and all... Well, not the character actor, I guess mm-hmm. I should say, the, the body actor and all that stuff, how that whole thing came together. And mm-hmm. once I saw the behind the scenes, it's like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm cool. Yeah. But it's so fucking terrifying. The one movie in recent years that kind of made me cringe the most in terms of horror film, and it's not really like a horror film, it's more like psychological horror, if anything, Audition. I don't think I saw that. The Japanese movie. There's this movie where this girl who apparently was raped by this guy, she kidnaps the guy and systematically tortures him for days. Hmm. Like, she, like, at one point, which is the scariest part of the movie to me, she takes a piano wire and saws off his foot. Oof. While he's still alive, he's sitting there, like, looking at her do it. He could, I think she gave him, like, some kind of drug that paralyzed him, so he couldn't do anything, but he felt all the pain. Oof. Yeah, it was, and she did it so slow. Right, I can see that. And she was talking to him so gentle as he was doing, oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> that one, that That's one That's definitely me. a cringe. That one got me. Um, let's see what else. He actually has an uh, alert, allergy to shellfish and apparently had an allergic reaction to shrimp on the set of Thriller. Hmm. Uh Let's see. Uh, Eddie Murphy apparently asked him to direct The Nutty Professor, but he declined. Mm. He was briefly attached to direct the uh, Dick Tracy movie in 1990, the Warren Beatty yeah, movie. Yeah, that was actually good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's too bad he wasn't on it. No, it wasn't. Uh, we mentioned before that he's done movies with uh, Donald Sutherland, and at one point, he actually babysit Keither. <laughs> That's hilarious. He was, he was Keither's babysitter. And uh, he actually went to go see The Beatles with... Uh, I think, his, I think his name is Peter Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith's son. And Jerry's the one that took him. And they, and they saw him at the Hollywood Bowl, and they said they couldn't hear shit but because of the fact there's so much screaming and shit. Yeah. But they still had a great time, you know what I'm saying? So they went to go see the Beatles, man. There you go. Yeah. Uh, he was asked to direct National Lampoon's Vacation, but he was apparently busy with American Werewolf in London at the time. So I mean, that's all right. Yeah. It, look, the, movie, the movie's fantastic. Yeah. He was also asked to direct Meatballs. The oh, Ivan dude, Reitman that would have been that. I don't know, man. I, I really like Ivan Reitman. I don't like that movie. I only like the Bill Murray parts. The rest of the movie is well, trash. Yeah, but I mean, but that's okay, yeah, fine. The rest of the movie is trash, bro. I'm sorry. 
I like the Bill Murray parts, but like you gotta sit there and wait. But for I mean, Bill, Bill Murray is like the movie as far as everyone's concerned. Like, what other what other scenes does anyone ever quote? I mean, if you're talking yeah. about meatballs, it's just Bill Murray anyway. Basically, yeah, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I like that stuff. Yeah, he's I like the the shit where he's at the beginning. He's showing like, okay, guys, this is the rule book to the uh, to our character. <laughs> Watch it closely. He rips it in half, throws it in the trash. <laughs> I like that one. Um, he was also asked to direct Big, the Tom Hanks movie, but he was doing Coming to America. Yeah. Time, so, uh, he's also uh, asked to direct uh, "Follow That Bird," the Sesame Street movie with Big Bird. I never even saw that. I don't know. You ever seen it? No. It, it's, it's pretty cool. Man. Like it's Big Bird going on this like it's almost like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but with Big Bird. He's like going cross country, meeting these different people. Like he's, I think he's he's going all the way to Sesame Street. You know what I'm saying? To find his way back home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah, I like I like it. Yeah. But, he, but he he had to turn it down because he was directing the movie into the night at the time. Uh, Dan Aykroyd asked him to direct a movie we talked about last week. <laughs> Nothing but trouble. Oh, good, All good trouble. <laughs> but but instead, Dan decided to. No, 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 no. Uh, Dan I know is, he, he yeah. turned him down, but that's what I'm saying. Then Dan got to have the director's experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he was also asked to direct uh, Little Shop of Horrors, the musical, at one point. That might have been interesting. That would have been interesting. Yeah, and. Uh, he this is this is the one I like the most. He was asked to direct Men in Black but turned it down. And the reason behind it is actually my initial thinking of Men in Black when I first saw it too. And this is a quote from him. These are the Ghostbusters dressed as the Blues Brothers, and you owe Dan Aykroyd some money. I agree with that. You know what casting casting's where they broke away. Because it would have been <laughs> come on, man. The he, casting doesn't fit, and, and they didn't yeah. play it that silly. Because you got Will Smith coming out of playing it kind of his his street character, Big Willie style, essentially, right? Yeah. And then Tommy Lee Jones, like. Well, yeah, deadpan is. Dead. Much, yeah. I mean, that's like the Joe, way he was born. <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe Friday, essentially. As yeah. A, as alien catcher. Exactly. But he has since regret. He said he regretted it. Like he won't like because exactly. he, he, he enjoyed the movie. Well, and honestly, it's the it's as so often happens. It's the best of the films. And it's a uh, Rick Baker. Yeah. Talk to Rick Baker. He won the Academy Award for Men in Black. As he should have. Yeah. It was so, killer. Yeah. And this is one that this is a misnomer for him that a lot of people assume that he uh a lot of people assume that he turned down Ghostbusters. He's like, I was never offered Ghostbusters. Yeah. He's like, he's like, You think I would have turned down Ghostbusters? Seriously. Like, like, no, but uh, he was never offered Ghostbusters. No. Um They're gonna keep that one in that family. <laughs> yeah. And also one frequent thing that he does in his movies, he likes to work with uh, rock and roll and R and B artists, iconic ones. B.B. Mm-hmm. King, fucking Aretha Franklin, James Brown. You're just gonna go through the whole lineup for Pretty much is but but in, even on top of that, David Bowie. Yeah. He's working with David Bowie, Michael Jackson. People like that. He's worked with a lot of those guys. Yeah. You know so uh, he also went into television briefly in the nineties. Uh, his most famous show that he did, Dream On, on mm-hmm. HBO, which is like one of those revolutionary shows on HBO because the fact it's one of the first shows to have sex and nudity and shit. And uh, it was a re- I, I, just, I used to watch Dream On a little bit when I was younger. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And like it, it always just intrigued me that the the little uh, protagonist guy was just getting laid so much. By really pretty chicks, like Playboy models. Well, I mean, that's where they did the casting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he also direct. He also uh, became an executive producer on shows and was a director on shows like uh, Weird Science on USA, which I was a fan of. Yeah, I did love the Weird Science TV show, Sliders with Jerry O'Connell and. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, he was the executive producer on that. 
Uh, and a short little one called Campus Cops. I don't remember that one. Yeah, I don't know it. Yeah. And he also did um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the show. Yeah. Uh, Which was kind of a weird one to go with. But, hey, you know what? I mean, that works. So, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, The Lost World and Mm -hmm. uh, the one on Showtime, Masters of Horror. He did two of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, The Deer Woman and Family. Yeah. And Deer Hunter, The Deer Woman was actually written by Max. I think it's like his first major thing. You know what's kind of weird when you look at that is that, and again, with his career specifically, it's strange that he never ended up doing any of the tales from the crypt. Because there was a lot of big directors like Tom, Tom Mankiewicz. I know I talk about him all the time. That's just because yeah. he'd always tell us all these stories. They basically, they had two stages, uh, wherever it was they were filming. I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But they would set one for one show. And while they were shooting that one, they'd start setting up the next one. And then they'd just swap back and forth. That's how they blow through the season so quick. Yeah. And it was basically like, if you go back and look at it, it's mm-hmm. a who's who of pretty solid directors who were just like killing time. Walter Hill. Joe Dante, yeah, Carl Gottlieb, Richard Donner, and then uh, some celebrities actually made their directorial debuts yeah. on Tales from the Crypt. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yep. Michael J. Fox, and Tom Hanks all made their director, de- directorial debuts on Tales from the Crypt. That's why I'm so surprised that they never got, got landed. But I mean, I guess Showtime, HBO, they were fighting, you know. That the one thing. I really remember of those guys uh, in terms of the, uh, their segment was the Tom Hanks one because it, like, uh, it was actually, uh, what's his name, uh, Treat Williams is this like gigolo who's like fleecing old ladies, and then the old ladies come back as zombies and eat them. Yeah, <laughs> that was a pretty good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now the one major trademark of Mr. Landis that is like pretty much become a cult thing in its own. See you next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Now, see you next Wednesday is a line of dialogue that is frequently in Mr. Landis's movies. The actual saying itself is actually a line of dialogue from 2001: A Space Odyssey. And actually, it was this. It was a, the name of a screenplay that he did early in his career that never got made. But every time he takes something from that screenplay and puts it in one of his other movies, he gives it a credit. Mm-hmm. And you'll see "See You Next Wednesday" pop up in different things in John Landis movies. Like you watch them now, you'll see a "See You Next Wednesday." Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now uh, in Trading Places, it's a poster in uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's apartment. It's like mm-hmm. a Gone with the Wind movie. Yeah. And uh, it's apparently, it's, and it, you see the little things, it's starring like Laurence Olivier and David Niven. And apparently it's actually the uh, whole cast of uh, the 1939 version of Weathering Heights. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Tucky, Kentucky Fried movie is actually a film uh, in a theater, which is like, they, uh, which they present in Feel Around. Which is like, you know, like how they do 3D and different yeah, shit like yeah, that. Yeah. So it was a new technique where there's an usher that comes behind you, you're watching this melodramatic-ass movie, and the usher, it's pretty much like, uh, 40x, but actual person is doing all the shit. So like, you smell something, he sprays the like balloon <laughs> thing. Uh, somebody gets hit, you get hit. Like, and then the real kicker was at the end, like a girl, a lady pulls off a knife, and he has a knife at a guy's throat. And then like, uh, it stopped the movie. And then like, the kicker was like, the skit ends like, okay, now we go to our next feature, deep throat. <laughs> and then the Usher's like smiling, looking at him, like he gets out, and the guy gets out of there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you see, uh, see you next Wednesday as a billboard in the Blues Brothers. It, like, there's a part where like they're leaving from the good old boys thing, and they're like getting chased by the good old boys, yeah. and then they run into those like state troopers like keep following that are that are like, hiding hiding behind the they're hiding behind the billboard, and that billboard is for a movie called See You Next Wednesday, and it's a giant gorilla yeah. movie, like a King Kong movie. <laughs> and apparently it's starring Donald Sutherland. 
Well, yeah. I mean, he's, and that's what's kind of fun about directors when they, they start to develop a body of work. Yeah. They're able to plant little Easter eggs and, you know, put a stamp on something that you mm-hmm. can start to pick up on. My favorite thing of the See Next Wednesdays is actually in American World from London. It's the porno in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the name of the porno in the movie is See You Next Wednesday. He did it. He said, like, I just want to do, like, a British, oh, my niggas have fallen off type porno. <laughs> so he did it. And it's, like, all British actors. And, like, there's one particular part where they're in the movie. That, uh, you see posters for it throughout the movie. Uh, most famously in the, like, the tube station where the dude's been t- chased yeah, by yeah, the yeah. werewolf. And then you actually go to the movies and go see it. And that's, like, the last sequence of the movie where they're in the theater watching this porn. Like, like all this shit going on. And then some dude comes in in the movie. Like, he's like, this guy and this girl, and this girl has a breast out. And he guy goes in there, what are you doing here? You said you never do such thing. I promise you no such thing. Not you, you twit her. I've never seen you before in my life. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and he walks out, and then he go back to having sex. And then, and then, they, and then uh, guys in the movie are like, good movie, man. <laughs> Dude, the the best thing I've ever heard about British porn that just kills me, it's a Russell Peters line. Mm-hmm. Talks about British guys having sex. It's like, oh, oh, I'm arriving. I'm arriving. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to Russell Peters. I'm st- Dude, I'm actually stoked. I'm going to get to see him in a couple of weeks. Nice. My wife, wife got me uh, tickets for Valentine's Day. I like when they did it on Family Guy too. British porn, like it's like two people like reading. All right, but, all right. No, 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 no. There's two people like sitting there reading like the newspaper. Like, I should, ta- I should like to have sex with you. Okay, that's nuts. All right. Well, there, there's another one when they were thinking, like, all right, all right. Uh, there we are. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, in the uh, in, in, <laughs> in the of course the world famous Michael Jackson thriller video. Yes, you can hear it in the theater when Michael and the girl are in the uh, theater watching a movie, and the famous meme of Michael eating popcorn is from that scene, and, in the, and you hear the dialogue of the movie or whatever as they're leaving, and some guys like something scrawled in blood. What's it say? See you next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also in the aforementioned Twilight Zone section, uh, a German character says it mm-hmm. in German. Like it's like I think there's like two like uh, Nazi guys shooting at the at, at, at uh, Big Morrow as a Jew, and they say to see you next Wednesday in German. Mm-hmm. And in spies like us, it's a it's an army recruiting poster. Oh yeah, yeah like, <laughs> I uh, forgot about that. Hey, when, uh, I gotta watch that again. Yeah, when uh, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd get assigned to Pakistan by uh, Bernie Casey, you see the poster right behind them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and coming to America, it's a space movie mm-hmm. in the subway station scene, and uh, and apparently it's starring Dan Aykroyd, Sybil Danning, Jamie Lee Curtis, Mo Howard, and James Brown. That's a, I, I would watch. I would literally watch any version of this that I've heard so far. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Landis has also accumulated some awards. He won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Picture for Coming to America. Won the Cable Ace Award for Best uh, Comedy Series for Dream On. He won the uh, Phoenix Film Award. Uh, I think there's like the Lifetime Achievement Award. He won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the uh, Catalonia International Film Festival. And the uh, most recent big award, he won the Emmy for Outstanding Variety Music or Comedy Special for Mr. Warmth, the uh, Don Rickles project. One of my one of my all-time favorites is, but that's because I'm such a big Don, Don Rickles fan. Yeah, yeah, and it's such a great documentary if you ever get a chance. But, like, if you see a lot of Landis's recent interviews, it's basically just him, like, accepting Lifetime Achievement Awards 
for different stuff. You know what I'm saying? And well, then, like, or talk about his movies. You know what I'm saying? Well, and for a short that uh, never gets mentioned, because uh, it looks like, yeah, you're getting ready to go into Animal House. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see, Did you see? I think, was it the 40th anniversary special edition? Oh, Animal House? Yeah, but I mean, did you watch the... Yeah, the, yeah, the, when they, uh, the, where are they now? Yeah, they, they essentially did a little documentary of where are they now, and they're looking for everyone and trying to find them. It was, it was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. And you see all the actors, pretty much, except for... John Belushi. John Belushi, who has, has passed away. But, but uh, I think if I remember right, uh, he's still in Congress. He's no, unavailable no, he's, for con- no, he no, he's the president. Oh, that's right. He he made Pre- it to president. president he was unavailable Blutarski. for content. <laughs> he was a or senator. For, uh, he was a senator at the end of Animal House, and he eventually became president. Yeah, and he's unavailable for comments. Okay, now we're gonna go ahead and get into Mr. Landis's movies. Now, what we did just like the last time with Bruce Willis, we did a top ten of our favorite of Mr. Landis's work. Uh, basically, from the from that list, we had a lot of corresponding ones, but basically, we just like. Uh, I narrowed it down to our top five of each one. And the five films we picked to talk about, Animal House, The Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. An American Werewolf in London, uh, Coming to America. What's that one? Yeah, Coming to America. What's that one? Sorry, which one did you say? I was I was reading something. The right. Animal House, Blues Brothers, Coming to America. I got a couple more. Uh, uh, Trading places. places. And there's one more. Uh, I got another one here. Sorry, hold on. Uh, Blues Brothers, Trading Places, Animal House, Coming, Coming to, to America, America, and shit, pages are sticking together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, American Werewolf in London. Yeah, okay, there we go. And also through American Werewolf in London, we got a special bonus one that we're going to be doing. Yeah, we'll get into Thriller. We'll get into Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Now, first off, we're going to go ahead into Animal House. Now, this is the first movie produced by National Lampoon, the magazine, which was a huge <laughs> magazine at the time in the 70s. Well, and don't forget... They also had, which they still have going on, National Lampoon Radio Hour. Yeah, they, they should do. And it's like a lot of young people now, you know, they got a sketch thing. Actually, I think I auditioned for that once. Yeah, and they're, they're, still, they're still cruising. Uh, uh, Mr. Shapiro's got that thing rocking and rolling. They're doing good. That's what's up, man. But, uh, yeah, like I said, National Lampoon Magazine at the time was one of the more popular magazines in the country. Uh, it was up there with, like, Mad Magazine and all that other shit. My favorite cover that they ever did is the one with the dog. Oh yeah, yeah. If you, like basically, it's a dog with a gun to his head. It's like, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll shoot this dog. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog is looking at the gun like, okay. <laughs> it, like I don't know what it is. Just the visual that makes me laugh. But well, the whole concept is ridiculous. Too. But the main uh, creative voice between uh, up from the uh, National Lampoon was a writer named Doug Kenny, who mm-hmm. recently did a documentary on Mr. Kenny, uh, a futile and stupid gesture on Netflix. All about the life of Doug Kenny. Now, he was a writer, and he is also the first uh, magazine's first editor-in-chief. Uh, graduated from Harvard in 1969. and uh, One of the few times I can approve of Harvard. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, actually, a lot of the characters from Animal House first appeared in a uh, special that he did for the book, National Lampoon's High School Yearbook in 1973. Uh, well, now, before, before we jump too deep into it, yeah. one of the things that definitely needs to be said is... Uh, if, if you haven't watched this movie mm-hmm. and you go and watch it right now, especially if you have more modern sensibilities, yeah. <laughs> uh, the word offended won't cut it. Oh, no. Um, because, I mean, it's, it's the original frat humor movie yeah. is what it is, it right? It is, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of shit that happens in this film that um, not only would be socially unacceptable, some mm-hmm. people would probably have a hard time even understanding the, the comedy behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it's also worth noting that at the time, certain aspects, which we'll get into, were already controversial. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of is, it also created an additional genre, not only frat humor in general, yeah. uh, but it created the, the college humor. Yes. And all of the college movies that spawned from that, what was this, 1978, 76? 70 something. Yeah, um, like 78, yeah, 78. But by the time you get into the 80s and into the early 90s, mm-hmm. the idea of the crotchety old dean who just doesn't get it and isn't with the times and the young uh, diamond in the rough protagonist that's going to bring party and fun and life to the to the campus. Or like the whole thing of the, you know, the schlubby, nerdy, or like... Well, yeah, I mean, Revenge slop, of the Nerds. Slop, sloppy... Uh, the, the people that don't quite prep, fit in. And then the preppy bad guys, you know what I'm saying, with the Right, sweaters which is, that's, that's and, the every 80s movie, right? The, you know? the sweater and the coiffed hair and shit like and that. All, yeah. And this is, this is literally the impetus. This is where the whole thing started. And just the impetus on them drinking and partying and trying to get laid, etc., etc., yeah. yeah, so... But going back to, like I said, they made their debut in a special called the National Lampoon High School Yearbook. Uh, and uh, it, it featured the characters of Larry Kroger, Mandy Pepperidge, and uh, Vernon Warmer. Now, all the characters pretty much are the same in the movie except for Vernon Warmer. He was apparently the PE coach and the civics coach as well as the athletic coach in the yearbook. Now, Doug Kenny himself uh, felt that uh, writer Chris Miller was actually... Um, a writer on the uh, Lampoon and Chris Miller was actually the expert in college experiences for the Lampoon. He had went to uh, Dartmouth, and uh, a lot of the antics of his uh, fraternity, a uh, couple of experiences of like a road trip to like the University of Wisconsin, were pretty much like the antithesis of like the uh, the Deltas, the the yes. good guys of Animal House. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of those characters and a lot of those mannerisms came from that particular experience. And uh, in terms of getting the film made. Uh, uh, filmmaker Ivan Reitman, yep. the great Ivan Reitman, was actually a producer on a different a bunch of different shows, in particular the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and he also did their uh, off-Broadway show, Lemmings. Mm. And a lot of those featured pre-SNL stars, so Chevy Chase, Bill Murray did it, Belushi did it, Gilda Radner. They all did it before they broke out on SNL. Now, Ivan Reitman is the one that approached Maddie Simmons, the publisher, of National Lampoon about doing a movie about the you know National Lampoon type shit. Now um, the actual group itself, uh, a lot of the Lampoon group actually broke up around that time because SNL came along and snatched up most of them. Uh, but uh, because of that, they thought the initial idea was actually do a movie of just a bunch of skits, kind of similar to uh, the, the Kentucky, Kentucky Fried, Fried movie. movie. Yeah, but uh, Doug Kinney met with uh, met with actually with Harold Ramis. And they suggested doing a, a movie about their fraternity experiences. And Ramis himself, another great, Harold Ramis, came on and he talked about his own frat experiences at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And he was actually working on a uh, treatment called fir- Freshman Year, and he wasn't happy with it. So uh, what happened was Doug Kinney and Harold Ramis started working on a movie together. <laughs> I love the premise. <laughs> Charlie Manson in high school, and in the, late, <laughs> and the movie, the movie was called Laser Orgy Girls. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it's sa- spot on. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> so Matt uh, Maddie Simmons liked the idea, but he's like, you know, let's let's, let's go with the college thing. It's a little <laughs> like uh, yeah, and let, let's change the setting to a northwestern, you know, a northeastern college, you know, Ivy League type thing, and Doug Kenny, Chris Miller, and uh, 
how they were started getting together and brainstorming ideas. And they said it specifically in 1962 because, they, according to them, it was the last innocent year of America because it's like right before right before the Ke- cultural Ke- awakening before, before uh, Kennedy yeah. got assassinated specifically. Well, yeah, and it's and it's right when you start to have the cultural revolution and everything starts shifting in America. Mm-hmm. Yep. Free love, weed, all that stuff. Oh yeah. Now uh, you got any facts? Yeah, well, I mean I've got a bunch. If you wanna wanna jump in, um, go for it. So one of the one of the most iconic scenes is they're on a on a road trip, uh, and they uh, they pull up to this uh, this bar, and at this point they've already had a big house party where uh, Otis Redding actually uh, plays. No, it's Otis Day. Otis Day. Sorry, Otis Day plays, and uh, they pull over at this uh, bar because they see Otis is playing there, and they go in. Turns out it's a black bar. Yeah. And uh, it's these four guys and their dates uh, who they just picked up at an all-girls college <laughs> after lying about... Fawn Leibowitz. Fawn Leibowitz <laughs> being the uh, recently deceased... <laughs> the recently so deceased... Fawn Leibowitz. Um, ...fiancé of one of the guys. Yeah. Um, and anyway, the, the, as the scene progresses, the long and short of it is, the guys get scared about all the black dudes in there. They take off running and leave their oh, dates... Yeah. Do you mind if we dance with your dates? <laughs> they leave their dates there with the black guys. And yeah. um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Te- uh, sorry, Ned Tannen, yeah. who was uh, the president of Universal when they were doing a screening. He actually stopped the screening, mm-hmm. and he demanded that they take the scene out yeah. because he was worried it was going to cause a race riot. Yeah. Um, which, obviously, it didn't. Um, they, they were able to eventually keep it in. Um, and, and push it, and actually, if I remember right, uh, they'd screened it uh, for, for Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he wrote to Tannen and said, uh, Animal House, and this is a quote, Animal House is fucking funny, and white people are crazy. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> <I love laughs> Which that. is the best note you could ever get on a screening. Like, if, if Richard was alive today, and Animal I could get House that, is fucking funny. that's better than an Oscar, as yeah. far as being a comedic filmmaker yes, yes sir um, and so you know they, they kept it in the rest is history yeah now they agreed to have John Belushi uh, star in it because of the fact that Ramis had wrote the role of Bluto specifically for John Belushi because mm-hmm. they had been friends ever since the uh, their days together at the Second City in Chicago yep. and uh, Belushi was the guy he was the guy in Second City and he was the guy in their uh, Broadway show Lemmings uh, so they brought him in now Ivan White- Reitman himself wanted to direct the movie he became a producer of the movie but Universal themselves wanted somebody with more experience. I think the only movie he had did at that point was uh, Cannibal Girls with a very young Eugene Levy. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a weird movie. Uh, so uh, basically they approached John Landis in- instead. Now, John Landis said he got the director's job while, po- while doing post-production of the Kentucky Fried movie. The Kentucky Fried movie had not come out yet. And he met with a, a, executive, uh, a studio executive by the name of Sean Daniel. Uh, who had saw the first cut and thought it was funny. And what happened was the script doctor who was on the uh, Kentucky Fried movie was actually Sean Daniels' girlfriend. And she's the one that suggested John Landis because he had worked with him before already. Which was which actually turned out to be great for everyone. But mm-hmm. back to when they were trying to put this thing together and everything, when they, uh, when they brought Donna uh, Sutherland on mm-hmm. uh, and he, he agreed to do it, he was convinced it, it was going to just be horrible yeah, yeah, and that there yeah. wasn't any potential. Right. So he actually turned down a piece of the gross uh, for his flat fee of $75,000 for the three days' work, which he, uh, he if he'd have kept it, yeah, I mean, he, he gave yeah, up millions. Yeah, he, 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 he yeah, it was, it was a It was a bad call. Yes, it was. Now, beginning of that, there was actually friction between John Landis and the writers early on because 
of those guys, all those all the writers were college graduates. John Landis is a high school dropout who dropped out of high school in seventeen. I think he made the right decision. Yeah. And uh, what they, what really pissed him off, apparently, according to Harold Ramis, was that he started referring to Animal House as his movie. Mm. And they had been living with it for two years, and they hated that. See, well, and that's that's actually one of the things. I've heard it go back and forth with a lot of directors over the years, because mm-hmm. you'll always see, uh, you know, actually, I, I had a friend, you know, it's, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, so-and-so's joints, or yeah. like almost like a Spike Lee joint, right? Yeah, like Because yeah, yeah. you see a lot of directors will then say, hey, you know, a, a John Landis film or a so-and-so film. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a school of thought that definitely has some real credence to it that says, I mean, if you want I'll, to, to just bring something out that Tom always said that I think of every day, mm-hmm. movie making is a team sport. Yeah. If you want to be an autocrat, go write a novel. Yeah. And that's the thing about it. So, I mean, it's, look, you're never going to find anyone more, more arrogant than a film director unless you start looking at maybe like a general or the president of the United States or yeah. something like that. Like until there's, it's just something that tends to attract very arrogant personalities. Yes. Um, and it has to in a lot of respects because the most useful person on a set can be a director. Mm-hmm. And likewise, the most useless person can also be, be the director. director. Um, so if you really got somebody who has a clear vision is putting their stamp on it, they're going to want to do that. But it ultimately, as you're noting, leads mm-hmm. to some really unfortunate and unnecessary friction that you just don't need to have. Yeah. Now, as far as the screenplay itself, now, John Landis says his only real contribution to the script was the fact that he said he read the script, he loved it, he thought it was hilarious, but there was no, like, clear good guys and bad guys. He thought everybody was a pig, but we pretty much were. So his main contribution was separating there's a good guy group and there's a bad guy group. Yeah, and we got we're rooting for the bad, we're rooting for the good guys. We're shitting on the bad guys, which is important. I mean, because otherwise yeah. you just end up with a lot of weird shit that happens. Like, okay, movie's over. Like, you have to have mm-hmm. something that allows the audience to identify with a, a group or a team. Otherwise, yeah. I'm, why am I sitting here for two hours? Exactly. Now we already talked about uh, Otis Day, played by actor Dwayne Jesse, who yes. was in Car Wash and Bingo Long, and is traveling all stars and Bingo uh, like Bingo Longs. Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings, he was in that shit too. But he was Otis Day in this movie, and he was so successful playing Otis Day, he actually legally changed his name to Otis Day. And with his family, has been touring the United States at colleges all across this country as Otis Day in the Nights, pretty much since that movie. Hmm. Yeah, and they've been doing it for years. Like I've, I've seen, I, I remember I went to one college. There was a listing for Otis Day and the Nights. They, they do like toga parties and shit like that or whatever and people come out, man. They love Animal House, so yeah. So one one quick note from this it connected back to Twilight Zone we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a segment in that. So if you've watched the film all the way at the end, um, Niedermeyer, who is the oh, main yeah, bad guy, yeah, 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 he's, yeah. he's it says at the end when they're saying what happened to everyone after college, uh, they say that um, Niedermeyer was, <laughs> was killed, killed in by Vietnam his own, by, his by his own, own troops. troops. And then in, in uh, Twilight Zone, in his segment of Twilight Zone, some of the troops can be heard expressing their regret for having killed Niedermeyer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So there's a nice, again, another way that he was tying it back into all of his films. Yeah. So. Now, Belushi's performance in the cafeteria scene in particular was all improv. Oh, that was great. And like the whole thing of him piling on the food and stuffing food into his mouth. It's basically John Landis off camera urging him, hey, do it this. Like, uh, hey, put that in your mouth. And uh, like, ooh, that looks good. You know, he was just doing that shit to John Belushi, and John Belushi was just doing it in improv. And shit, and then the whole thing where he's like got the mashed potato in his mouth and does the I'm a zit, get it? <laughs> that was genuine. Like they didn't know that was gonna happen. <laughs> Which gets you some great 
total realistic reactions. Yes, yeah. Um, and then actually, as long as we're talking about kind of the end credit portion as well, so at the end, um, it says that Babs became a tour guide at Universal Studios. I love that. So at the end of this film and every other Landis film. Not every other one, but a few pretty, other pretty, ones. So. Pretty much. I mean, the majority of the ones we talk about since, since 89. But basically anyway. the ones he does for Universal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Specifically, it has to be Universal. Because as I say, at the end of the uh, Universal uh, logo, it, it actually, or underneath it, at mm-hmm. the very end sequence, it says, Ask for Babs. No, it's just like, uh, when in Hollywood, visit Universal Studios. Ask, Ask for, for Babs. Babs. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then apparently for years, people would get in free. Well, it was they, yeah. there was a discount or free entry, depending on. Yeah, yeah. It, it initially, it was free entry, but then so many people started doing it, then it became a discount. Now they, they, don't, do, they don't do it at all anymore. So. Yeah, as far as I know, that one's over. Yeah, it's been gone <laughs> for a while, yeah. Now, uh, Ivan Reitman's original choices to... Uh, for this movie, in particular for Boone and Otter, were Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. But Dan, uh, John Landis himself did not think that Chevy Chase himself was the right fit for the part. And he actually went out of his way to convince Chevy, like, this ain't the movie for you. You should, you're a romantic lead. You're, you know what I'm saying, you're a handsome guy. Why don't you do some other movie like that? And he went on to do uh, the movie uh, Foul Play with Goldie Hawn, <laughs> which is okay, but it wasn't Animal House, you know what I'm saying? And uh, mainly because of the fact he didn't want uh, he didn't want Chevy mainly because of the fact that Chevy was the star of SNL at that time. He yeah, was, he was the guy. He was the only well, one. I mean, yeah. He if was, we do a, st- a Chevy Chase one at some point, we can yeah. get into how personality and stuff can yeah. be an issue. But he was the mainly he was the star because of the fact he was the, of the cast. He was the only one that actually identified himself on camera. I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. And as a result, he was like the kind of the centerpiece yeah. guy. Uh, Landis didn't want that. He wanted it to be an ensemble film. Now, the role went to Tim Madison, who uh, was a child actor. Most famously, uh, he was actually the voice, of, the original voice of Johnny Quest. Huh. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he was, the, and he was also uh, Jace on Space Ghost. Which uh, I, like. dude, had, I gotta they, watch Space Ghost again. They had Jan, been, yeah, he had the twins, Jan and Jace. Uh, Tim Madison was Jace. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, actually, funny enough, like, Chevy Chase and Tim Madison would actually end up starring together in the movie Fletch. In 1985, but Chevy Chase has gone to say he regrets not doing Animal House as yeah. he should. You know, and um, Belushi himself actually had to fly back and forth from Oregon to New York because of fact while he was doing Animal House, he was yep. also doing Saturday Night Live. So yeah, he was staying busy. And actually, another quick uh, fun uh, Belushi one. So the scene where Bluto smashes the beer can on his head and mm-hmm. breaks the bottle. They actually had to shoot that 18 times. Yeah. Because uh, Stephen First, who was playing uh, um, uh, Flounder. Flounder, shit. Yeah, yeah. Flounder, brain, brain fart. Flounder, flounder. Anyway, playing Flounder, mm-hmm. he kept breaking and laughing. Yes, right. Yeah. So he busted. I mean, seriously, when you watch that scene, mm-hmm. it's totally easy to understand why, because yeah. how could you not? Yeah. And uh, Harold Ramis, the, one of the screenwriters in the movie, actually wrote the part of Boone for himself. Yeah, yeah. But well, and it took him a minute, but then he he eventually he made that shift with uh, I think his first one was Stripes, right? With Stripes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, John Landis felt he was too old to do the <laughs> part because like uh, he was actually thirty two at the time, and the guy they picked was actually twenty nine, Peter Rieger, and also uh, he didn't think that Harold Ramis was the actor that Peter Rieger was. Unfortunately, he's not. But uh, but what he offered uh, as a consolation, he offered the screenwriters a. Look, if y'all come to the set and like fucking like uh, just fly to the set, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hire you guys as extras, and then you get paid for every day you're on there. You know what I'm saying? So you don't lose no money. Uh, two of the writers took him up on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Kenny and Chris Miller. They're in the movie, and uh, Harold did not because he's too pissed off. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean that that goes back to what we were talking about before the the relationship. Once it gets sour, 
mm-hmm. it's hard to, especially in stuff like this, because I mean the creative side of things, it's yeah, people are sensitive. Yeah, the uh, role of D Day, <laughs> the motorcycle. Oh yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> was written for Dan Aykroyd because the fact <laughs> that Dan Aykroyd is a professed motorcycle loving kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? But uh, Lauren Michaels actually threatened to fire Dan Aykroyd if he took the part because he's already he was already losing the Belushi. He's like, I'm not gonna lose too many people for this movie. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, also. Um, we talked about it earlier. Uh, the Stephen Bishop cameo in this movie is the charming guy who plays the little song on the pianos at the t- on, on the sc- on the uh, stairs at the uh, toga party. He's playing like I gave my love a cherry, <laughs> and then Blue comes down after he sings the song a little bit. He takes the fucking guitar and starts smashing it against the wall and shit. Now the hole. That Belushi made in the wall with that goddamn uh, guitar is the only damage that happened to the house throughout the whole shoot. So instead of so instead of actually paying for it to get fixed, they put like a uh, an engraved brass tag and commemorated the wall, the, the thing on the wall. And actually, there's a collection of girls around Stephen Bishop in the scene. The one right off of his like left shoulder was Belushi's wife, Judy. I didn't realize that. That was his wife. Yeah. You know, and I have to say, it's one of my favorite scenes of all time, and mm-hmm. I really wish somebody would do that again so we get rid of all this folk music crap. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> and when doing the, the, you know, you make me want to shout, the yeah. girl that Blue Shoes Dancing with is Judy. Oh, again. that's cool. Yeah, so his wife. Um, and uh, also, yeah, let's see, we talked about that. Uh, yeah. Stephen McCartan, the guy who plays Lucky Boy at the end, where he's got the Playboy. And, <laughs> thank you, guy. And then the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the sorority chick falls through his window, and yeah. he goes, thank you, guy. That that guy actually grew up to be a preacher. Yep. Um, out there in Oregon, actually, it was at uh, Cottage Grove. He's yes. he's still there yep. as a preacher today. He actually there's a really great 30th anniversary mm-hmm. um, uh, like interview and, mm-hmm. and kind of a documentary they did about it, and they interview him about it. He kind of laughs about. It. I was like, yeah, you know, it's yep. kind of kind of my weird claim to fame. Exactly. And uh, one of the more one of the, one is the subtle scene, but it's a really good scene. Um, Boom, the character catches his girlfriend, Katie, played by Karen Allen, in her debut role, uh, catches her sleeping with her professor, who was played by Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Now, actress Karen Allen was actually told, you know what I'm saying, that she had to bear her bare ass on film, and she didn't want to do it. So Donald Sutherland stepped in, he said, well, you know what, I'll do it. I'll do it with you. <laughs> so he pretty much dropped his pants right there in front of her, he's like, I'll do it with you. And so that's why you see both her... And Donald Sutherland with no pants, yeah. And like Donald Sutherland's like reaching for some serious, like got it, and he sees his butt. And uh, also, uh, more money uh, was spent on advertising and promotion for this movie than the actual movie itself. (laughs) (laughs) Which I mean, that's one of the things. Like right now, majority of the time, especially it comes with big budgets, whatever. Whatever they spend on the film, they usually spend equal amount on advertising. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the rules you can go with. But when you get to these indie flicks that they grab like the stuff they're buying at Sundance and everything right now mm-hmm. they're going to be spending way more to try to get people to see it speaking of flicks uh, the president of the uh, University of Oregon which is where the movie is based uh, only allowed this movie to be filmed because he didn't know how to they pretty much decided he didn't know how to read no screenplay he don't know what the hell he's talking about uh, apparently in 1967 he actually received the screenplay for a hit movie to be filmed there but he denied it that movie ended up being The Graduate with Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman Here's to you, Mrs. Yeah. Robinson. That shit. And he's like, he liked that movie so much, like he said, like, if, if something like that ever happened again, I'm not gonna miss this opportunity. So he approved Animal House, but then he saw the movie, he's like, 
Uh-oh. Okay, you can do it, <laughs> but don't put the name of the University of Oregon in credits, okay? <laughs> You know something else kind of funny about this? This was actually the uh, the debut of both Kevin Bacon and Karen Allen. Yeah, the first movie. Yep. The very first movie, which first is crazy. One. And they would go, both go on to great careers. Karen Allen went on, go on to, like, you know, Starman and Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana Jones movies. And uh, she uh, she's in Scrooge, a bunch of other movies and shit. Yeah, and she's, Ke- she's and, around. And Kevin Bacon is Kevin Bacon. He's still know? around. Yeah, right, he is. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. The bass player for the Oldest Day and Nights was actually... Robert Cray. You know what I'm saying? Which is crazy. Yeah, you know that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I love legendary bassist Robert, Robert Cray. <laughs> uh, let's see what else here. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, the, like we mentioned before, the two screenwriters were in the movie. They're in the... Their characters in the name are Stork and Hardbar. Doug Kenny is the one that's like, well, what the hell are you supposed to do, you moron, doing the uh, big blushy speech? That's Doug Kenny. <laughs> and he's also the dude that leads the marching band when they do the oh, parade yeah, thing. Front. And he leads the, and he's he the marching band. He plays that until, Stork, right? Yeah, Stork. And he leads the yeah. marching band into an alley. And then also Chris Miller's in the movie as Hardbar. He's also in the parade scene where the, the guy's like, hey, can my uh, son uh, sit on your shoulder? No. That's Chris Miller. <laughs> and apparently Chris Miller based his character on a guy that he was a frat member with uh, that ma- <laughs> that masturbated excessively. <laughs> That's a good character. Yeah. Hardbar. That was his name, Hardbar. Hard <laughs> oh, yeah. And also the famous scene where Belushi's just down in this giant ball of jack. Yeah. That's all. That was actually Ice-T. Nice. Because they, they were Well, actually- yeah, they couldn't. I mean, that was... They, they would have been done for the rest of the day. They were probably going, had to get his stomach pumped. They were going out of their way to make sure that Belushi did not get tanked while making this movie yeah. because he had a reputation even before he made this movie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, um, the core group of the Deltas, D-Day, Otter, Boone, Hoover, Flounder, and Pinto, actually traveled up to the site uh, of the movie a week early uh, by John Landis's request because he wanted the group to emotionally bond so when they're filming, their friendship comes across as real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which it did. So they did a good job with that. Also, the initial budget for this movie was only $2.5 million. So to cut costs, the film was actually shot almost entirely at the University of Oregon in Eugene. The uh, student court scene is there. The scenes in Dean Wormer's office are there. The only exception was the road trip scene, which you mentioned, and the parade. That was actually shot in Cottage Grove. Well, and, and the really funny thing, uh, because they were shooting you, Eugene, so the, the entire sequence with uh, all of the, the black actors at the roadside bar, yeah. they actually had to, basically it says, bust them yeah. and the black actors in from Portland because there weren't enough black people in Eugene. Exactly. <laughs> and also, uh, because the budget was so small, uh, they only shot overall 28 days in Eugene. Uh, John Landis had no trailer, no office. He could not watch dailies for three weeks. So, uh, his wife, Deborah, who we mentioned, mm-hmm. actually purchased a lot of the costumes and shit from local thrift shops. And actually, she and John Belushi's wife were the ones that made the togas. Oh, okay. That makes for sense. The, for the toga party. Yeah, they made that. You know, speaking about making this, did you know that they originally were going to set this at the University of Missouri? No, I didn't know that. That, that was the original plan until the president of the university read the script and he's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) And as I mentioned before, the principal photography for this movie was actually 28 days total. Jeez. I know. That's that's insane. Exactly. And uh, John Belushi worked, uh, John Landis worked specifically with John Belushi to make sure he had as little dialogue as possible. He wanted the character of Bluto to be a cross between Harpo Marx 
and the Cookie Monster, <laughs> which basically covers it. Which is why, like you know, uh, Blushy, though though he is the centerpiece of the movie, is more or less a supporting actor compared yeah. to the other actors or whatever. He he comes in, mugs some shit, and then just leaves. Yeah, he's not really like driving the story. He, well, and it makes sense too. Again, again, given his you know other uh, obligations at the time they were shooting it. You couldn't have him be the leading man and be the main protagonist and gone as much as he was. Now, we talked about the Donald Sutherland thing where he took his little flat rate and mm-hmm. then forgot about the bonus. John Belushi took the flat rate and the bonus, mm-hmm. and it worked out very well for John Belushi. <laughs> now, uh, Landis himself, uh, we talked about this a little bit. He basically is inspired by classic Hollywood, in particular comedies from like Buster Keaton, Howard Lloyd and the Marx Brothers, he used a lot of those techniques in this movie. In fact, like uh, a lot of the organized chaos in this movie was because of John Landis. Like the scene where like they go into the frat house and like somebody's just throwing bottles at him. Yep. That was John Landis <laughs> just throwing bottles at uh, John Belushi. And then when uh, Belushi catches one of them, like that was yeah. like that was improv. Like he didn't expect him to catch it. Like, okay. <laughs> and then there's one scene in that grocery store where like uh, Flounder is like catching a bunch of meat and different stuff. Yeah. That's John Landis and Tim Madison throwing stuff at him. <laughs> so John Landis is a very chaotic dude, man. And uh, in terms of the uh, overall legacy of this movie, uh, in 2001, it was nominated by the Library of Congress to be put into the National Film Registry to be preserved for all time because of its his cultural, historical, and aesthetic significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Animal House was voted number one in Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies. In 2000, the American Film Institute ranked the movie as number 36 in its 100, movie, 100 Years, 100 Laughs special. And uh, the actual uh, sweatshirt, the very, very famous college sweatshirt worn by John Belushi, was actually hanging up in the... Uh, Saluki bar and also like uh, also hangs up at our uh, cigar spot Bowles. Oh yeah, it's in the members room. We yes, have a picture. Of, we have a portrait of John Belushi with the college sweater on. As it should be. That's right. You got any more for the for uh, animals? Nah, nothing. Nothing else is going to add too much to it. So I, I think I'll, I think I'll let it sit uh, there. Suffice it to say, it's definitely one of the the most influential comedic films uh, of last century Um, it's got a lot of legs to it so it's going to be around for a while and it's still funny it's still great and that's the thing even even the scenes that people are going to object to and Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. it doesn't lose the oomph and the fun and the excitement of it i can only imagine what it was like in the 70s when this first came out but even now it's just like i'm a guy 2020 it's still a funny movie so for sure well, now our next movie for Mr. Landis, Trading Places. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like AJ mentioned earlier, this is the movie, the first movie he filmed immediately after the whole incident with the Twilight Zone movie. Yep. So. And it was also, uh, see, I think it was Dan Aykroyd's first film after Dr. Detroit. Yes. Which was his first film post-Belushi. Yeah. And uh, um, I'm reading here real quick. They, yeah. uh, they actually, and by they, I mean everyone in Hollywood, thought that he was basically Duh. washed up, right? Duh. It's yeah. like when you when you lose a part of a comedy duo, it's really hard mm-hmm. for the remaining member to continue on. Think David Spade, right? Yeah. It's like doing Abbott with Costello. Mm-hmm. It's just it doesn't quite work. Apparently, uh, Landis actually remarked to us, like, everybody was like the same thing when like Martin, Martin and Lewis broke up. Everybody was like, poor Dean, what's Dean going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he ended up doing just fine. He did all right. Yeah, he did all right. Now, the storyline of Trading Places... Uh, with a member of society trading places with a, another guy who's lesser in a lesser socioeconomic standing. It was actually compared a lot of times to the Mark Twain movie, 
the Mark Twain novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Mm-hmm. You know, where a rich guy and a poor guy who happen to look exactly alike trade places to see what it's like on the other side for either one. You know what I'm saying? And I also compare it to uh, another Mark Twain novel, The Million Dollar Banknote. Now, the movie itself was originally called Black or White, Black and White. Yep. And it was supposed to star Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Yep. Yeah. Which there's the connection back to Black and White, the music video he later did with, yeah. which at the time, mm-hmm. Landis said he thought was a terrible title, and it's just hilarious because later on he goes on to do the music video. Black or White, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, the actual idea itself for the movie actually came from a tennis game. Yeah, well, and so actually, yeah. just, just before we get too far into that, talking about how Landis came in, yeah. uh, I was actually uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who mm-hmm. was a Paramount at the time, mm-hmm. um, he asked him to look at the script back when it was still called Black or White, mm-hmm. um, and they brought on uh, Tim Harris, and I can't remember Herschel's first name. Um, no, Herschel is his first name. The last Herschel, name is uh, Wingrob. Win, yeah, however you, however you say Win, that. Wingrod or something like that. But it was Tim Harris with the, the tennis game that really had to bring on the life. Yes, exactly. So apparently what happened is well, there was this tennis game where these two brothers who were doctors would play tennis with Tim Harris, and they were so irritating because they had this lifelong sibling rivalry about they, everything. They couldn't play on the same team. They always had to play against each other. Yep. They're always betting like piddly amounts of money like 50 cents against each other yeah. haggling over little tiny stupid bills mm-hmm. so uh, what Tim did he took those two brothers and he had them arguing about the theory of nature versus nurture yep. what is more indicative to a person's success is it his genetics or is it like, the environment in which he's uh, brought in you know what I'm saying so they use that premise pretty much as the yeah. starting point for this particular screenplay he says he pitched it to Herschel mm-hmm. and, uh, and he just fell in love with the idea is like yeah that's that could actually be fun especially with the idea that two rich guys would essentially use people below their station in life essentially as guinea pigs exactly so um so that happened and you already talked about landis coming on now prior yep. to the movie john landis didn't know who the hell eddie murphy was no he'd never never even heard of him so 40 uh, this is a direct quote from uh John Landis, he said, so 48 Hours hadn't come out yet, and they had previewed it, and Eddie Murphy had previewed very well, and they thought, oh, my God, this guy's going to be a star. So they talked to Landis about it. He's like, okay, so what do you think about Eddie Murphy playing the Bill Ray Valentine character? And his answer was, who's Eddie Murphy? Well, we, we actually need to back up just a little bit because, again, we said that it was going to originally be uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. but this was right after Richard Pryor had been burned. Yes. That famous incident that was supposedly freebasing cocaine, but mm-hmm. since his death and a lot of stuff's come out, it looks like mm-hmm. it may have actually been a suicide attempt, but we can get into that some other time. But yeah. at any rate, Richard was in no no position mm-hmm. or situation to be able to start mm-hmm. acting or starring in a film. I just love the irony of that line, who's Eddie Murphy? Yeah. <laughs> you'll find out. Everybody says that at some point about everyone, Greg. You'll, you'll find out. Uh, so the Who's sh- J.D. Belser? Damn right. <laughs> you'll find out, motherfucker. <laughs> so the shooting schedule of the movie was uh, 15 days in Philly for the exterior scenes. And the interior of the uh, Duke and Duke party, the Christmas party, was actually at the Fidelity Bank on Broad Street. Uh, other locations in Philly were the Rodden House Square, Independence Hall, they had a uh, street of restored townhouses in Center City that was actually the exterior of Lewis's house. Uh, and they also used the uh, uh, Community College of uh, Philadelphia for the interior of the uh, police station scene. They used New York locations uh, between January and February of 83, uh, particular Park Avenue Armory for the, for the club, the yep. Heritage Club. The Duke and Duke offices was in New York. The interior was in New York. 
and he also used another uh, uh, Upper East Side uh, residence for the interior of Lewis's house. And they also actually ended up using the uh, the uh, commodities trading floor at One World Trade Center. Right. Uh, and the reason behind that was they tried to do it in Chicago, but after they looked at it in Chicago and they saw what these guys had going on, mm-hmm. John Lannis said they basically said these guys understand what we do too well. They didn't they didn't think it was good look for them, mm-hmm. and uh, they managed to to go around and sell it to New York, mm-hmm. um, which is actually it's kind of funny because they ended up uh, the traders you see in the background, everything that whole thing with them fighting in the pits. That was they actually toned yeah. it down, yeah. but ninety percent of the guys that were the extras were actual traders. traders. Yeah. And apparently they disrupt they disrupted this trading for real so much and people lost like millions of dollars. I'm like, no, y'all can't do this shit. No. Well, so the main thing he yeah. said that where he got most of the additional footage was he just went in guerrilla style and he was able to shoot here and there, and it took them two days to shoot the trading pit scenes. Yeah. And they they only could shoot for two to three hours at a time because, yeah. it, like you said, it was disrupting actual work. Exactly. Now uh, the actual story of the cornering of the Orange Market, which is the central climax of this movie, was actually inspired by Silver Thursday. Thursday, uh, the market crash in uh, 1980, where the Hunt brothers of Texas tried to corner the silver market, but they failed, and they lost over 100 million dollars. <laughs> now, now uh, a significant part of casting for this particular movie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. Now, John Landis himself cast Jamie Lee Curtis because they had done a uh, special together called "Coming Soon," which was basically going over. Uh, universal horror movie trailers and stuff, and he liked her personality. She thought he, he thought she was fun, so he decided he wanted her to be in this movie. Now, well, and, and the yeah. character of Ophelia, he was saying, mm-hmm. was was really difficult because you're trying to you're basically trying to cast what's a fantasy, mm-hmm. the hooker with the heart of gold, yep. right? That you've seen a hundred times, and like, how the hell are you supposed to do that? He said the most famous example of that was a uh, Clute. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he wanted that. Yeah, but. Now, according to John Landis, Jamie Lee Curtis was actually a hard sell because, in fact, she was primarily known for horror movies. Well, and like, she'd actually, I think that was coming off of the second or the third Halloween movie. She, she was doing, like, about a million-dollar quote. Second. Uh, second, the second one, right? Second one. So she had about a million-dollar quote for So that. she had already done Halloween, Terror Train, mm-hmm. Prom Night, and The Fog. She did those already. Yeah. And then Halloween too. Uh, so she was primarily known for that kind of thing. She was a scream queen. Wasn't known for comedy. She was only paid seventy thousand dollars, but she also credits John Landis for him picking that role as single-handedly changing the course of her life and her career. Part, and her for career, sure. again, that part. Now, another ironic thing about it is horror movies were infamous for, you know, having just copious nudity. Yeah, well, because I mean, the you know the whole joke they always bring up in Scream, right? It's like if you get naked and you have sex and you die. Yeah, exactly. because that was like that was supposed to be what their the moral of the story. Or but something. that's like that's kind of like indicative of like all most of the eighties movies. Like they'll just bring out some titties just for the sake of bringing out titties. Just to yeah, do but it. specifically with horror movies, yeah. they always did it, and then that was how you know because that person's gonna die next. Yeah. Now keep in mind all the horror movies that Jamie Lee Curtis was asked to do, nobody ever asked her to be nude. Yep. Yeah. This is the first. This is her first real straight movie, and they they finally asked her to get naked for it. And she went topless for this movie. Mm-hmm. And it was quite great. <laughs> uh, now, we talked about Frank Oz earlier as being one of the trademarks of this movie. He's of, got a uh, great scene in this one. Yeah, he's a police officer who's basically like uh, being bribed into incriminating Louis Thorpe. Yeah, he's, he, his job is uh, to help make sure that Dan Aykroyd goes down hard for some drug crimes. Winthorpe. 
Louis the Third. And he's pretty much doing the inventory all the stuff he turned in, and then like uh, he slips in a cellophane bag, like one cellophane. Oh no, no, I like the opera ticket thing, like two tickets to La, La Bohem. La Bohem. It's an opera, and he's like, it's an opera. <laughs> and then yeah, one cellophane bag. That's not mine. Taste it. That's PCP. <laughs> Angel dust. You know what this stuff does to kids? <laughs> You're looking at three to five mandatory, <laughs> Lewis. <laughs> so yeah, Frank Oz is a well, jerk in that movie. <laughs> just the other, just one other quick Landis thing in mm-hmm. the uh, Dan Aykroyd moment. So when he's having his headshots taken and everything yeah. for his booking photos, yeah, uh, his prison number is seven four seven four five zero five eight, which is the exact same number as as uh, John Belushi, Jake Blues, yeah. and the Blues Brothers. Yes, so it's another one of those ones where he tags in. Mm-hmm. And we can get there in a second, but Frank Oz also makes an appearance in the Blues Brothers. Yes, he does. Now, another of uh, the Landis trademark, looking at the camera, most famously in the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, during the... Uh, when the Dukes are explaining the commodities game to Eddie Murphy's character, Billy Ray Valentine's. Pork <laughs> uh, uh, Wheat, which is used to make bread. Pork bellies, which are used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. He looks at the camera like, really? Like, <laughs> like, like I don't know like, what like, bacon for, is. Like, for real? Like, for real? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he actually does it again when they, like, he gets arrested. He looks yeah. at the camera like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also, there's a cameo, very brief cameo of John Landis. You don't really see him, but like when uh, yeah. Billy Ray Valentine's released from jail, uh, he's basically standing next to uh, three guys in trench coats at the steps, whatever. Yeah. When, he, when Eddie Murphy's doing like, would you like to use the night stick officer? That shit. <laughs> you, and you, he has his back to the camera, but he's in the movie. Now, one thing I would like to do, which has always confused me, and I'm sure it's confused a lot of people that have watched Trading Places, though it's a beloved movie, the ending. I want to explain the ending. Okay. Okay, so the ending of the movie, uh, the, the buy low, sell high scheme that they have in the movie is basically a, a good explanation of the futures market. Now, the futures contracts in the, in the commodities trade is basically an agreement to buy or sell a commodity at a fixed rate at a certain time in the future, no matter what the market price is that day. Now, say if you have a contract to buy and the market price has risen above the value of that future, you can purchase that commodity at a cheaper rate that's set in this particular contract and then sell it again for a higher, uh, at the higher price or whatever. That's instant profit. Uh, that's exactly what the Dukes were hoping for. Right. Now, they instruct, now, you see, they instruct their uh, trader to... Uh, you know, start buying futures of orange juice because they, uh, right. they so got, they're, they're, yeah. so before the before the crop comes out, the crop report comes out. Mm-hmm. Everybody's wondering whether or not we're going to have enough oranges to make orange juice, right? Yeah. So to start with, what they think's happening because the guys swapped the crop report on them, they think it's been a horrible winter. Mm-hmm. As a result, the price of oranges is going to skyrocket. Yes. So as soon as trading opens. Before they make the announcement, the mm-hmm. Duke's whole scheme, their scam, their scam they're running is mm-hmm. they want to buy everything they possibly can mm-hmm. as quickly as possible because at a certain point, like let's say it's going to be a buck and orange, right? Mm-hmm. It's obviously insane, but whatever. It's a buck and orange. Mm-hmm. They're hoping that they're going to find out it's a freeze. And so the actual market spot rate, if you were to go buy oranges, will be $3 an orange, at which mm-hmm. point you can sell your contract of a dollar an orange for two. Yes. And you're still making... An extra buck, you're doubling your money essentially, and the people will still be happy to buy it. Yeah. So what it is like when you see their trader go in and starts making their like you know buy 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 whatever, the trader also is also a muppeteer. 
He's oh, a, really? He's a I didn't realize he was a Muppeteer. That's he's, a, he's a Muppeteer, yeah. He looks like it. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think he, I think he does like Rizzo on one of those characters. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but they send him in, and then they see the guy doing it, and everybody sees the Dukes. Like, everybody sees, hey, the Dukes are trying to corner the market. And then everybody tries to get in on it because of what the guy's doing now. Mm-hmm. Now, all these people are so obliged to, like, you know, they're, everybody's buying and nobody's selling. The, the price of the uh, uh, future goes high. And uh, what happens is when Dan Aykroyd changes the game and sets off this, what he shouts is, sell 200 April at 1.42, which go everybody goes nuts. Now, what he's saying is, uh, uh, let us agree that I will sell oranges to you in April at one at a dollar point forty two a piece. Now that's why everybody gets so excited because they think you know in April the price is going to be much higher than whatever he just said. Right. So they, they think that he's offering mm-hmm. he's offering one dollar oranges when they're expecting it to be three. Exactly. Now because of the fact that uh, uh, somebody's selling instead of buying, it causes an instant change and the price starts to drop. Right. And then uh, finally, <laughs> the guy comes in the, the slow ass old guy. I always hate this scene when he's. And now the the crop estimates for the next year. He takes his sweet ass time getting them damn glasses on. <laughs> he's like it's like a minute just no, every, it's perfect. Like everybody just sitting there watching him put these damn. He's only there for like a minute. And it's perfect. He milks it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. After looking at the orange growth estimates for the last year, we can uh, concede the following: the cold winter has apparently not affected the orange harvest, and everybody goes, goes nuts. Shit. Everybody goes nuts. <laughs> so what happens is is basically just revealing that. Uh, the price will not be high in the coming year, and that the price of orange orange juice will be low. Now, uh, all the people that felt obliged to buy from others now risk being stuck with this orange juice that they paid so much money for. And if that orange juice spoils, they must uh, find somebody to uh, to that, buy it. To buy it, yeah. So they lost. You know, they have a, <laughs> the, the frenzy to sell is causing everybody the price to just plummet even more, even more. And that's when Eddie and uh, Valentine, when Eddie and Dan start. No, buy buying shit. It. Yeah, and they reversed the course, and they promised they're going to buy the orange juice from others at a lower rate, and that's the orange juice they're going to be selling in, the, in April or whatever. By the time it's over, it's done. The fucking um, Both um, Winthorpe and Valentine are left with the contracts. So they are going to buy this orange juice at this low rate, and they also have this obligation to buy... Uh, up to others to buy orange juice from them at a higher rate, right? At, which is actually giving them a nice profit on their end, right? Because they they end up they end up basically, you have to sit down and look at it because it's the net at the end of the day, right? So yes. they they sold it at at two bucks, yeah. And then they turned around and they bought essentially you can almost think about like buying some of it back at what mm-hmm. like fifty cents, mm-hmm. and let's say the price is again back at a dollar. Yeah, they've made everything in between on the top and on the bottom because. Yeah. Nobody, I mean, none of the guys that are speculators that do that kind of stuff are going to actually go down and pick up mm-hmm. a couple of tons of oranges. Yep. They're going to turn around, they're going to sell it to people who actually make orange juice. So after uh, Winthrop and Valentine did that, the Dukes are left with the opposite. Now they because they bought high, and now they're forced to sell low, and that's going to bankrupt them. Well, and even worse than that, they can't yeah. get their, their futures unloaded yeah. because their guy collapses in the pit. That's right. So they end up stuck with everything they bought high, unable to sell anything low. And I, lo- I love that scene. At all. They, they come in. And now they have yeah. to settle up. Margin call, gentlemen. Well, you know, no. like, you know like, all, all proceedings are done at the end of the day, without exception. You know damn well we don't have over $300 million in cash. I'm sorry, boys. Put the uh, Duke's seats on the exchange up for sale. Uh, also, get uh, all, all, all assets of, of uh, Duke and Duke commodities, as well as all personal holdings of Randolph and Mortimer Duke. <laughs> yeah, and they're ruined. 
But Eddie and uh, well, I keep saying Eddie. Valentine and Winthorpe are fine because of the fact they have this guarantee. These guarantee. They, they basically they basically work the margins on both sides mm-hmm. to where now they're able to capture that profit, which is the whole point of commodities trading, especially yeah. in the futures market. Yeah. So what they did was what's called short selling. So you know, buy low, sell high. Just just yeah. think about uh, the crash in two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. There was a handful of guys made that great movie. The, uh, the big short. Big short. Yep. That's what these guys were. They were the big short of the orange juice market. Mm-hmm. And basically, what they do is they have a uh, what they call a margin call, which is basically just a, a percentage of the money on hand, sort of as a security. Now, normally they would have to borrow from a house for those particular contracts, but Eddie, I keep saying Eddie, Valentine and Winthorpe uh, didn't have that, so they basically did it with cash, which is why you have the scene Same where he's taking yeah, uh, everyone's money, Ophelia and uh, well, Ophelia and. Uh, Coleman give them give them the money in the yeah, train their station. life savings exactly so that's what they use to get this money up and it worked out yep. so well for them it worked amazingly well now this movie in that particular scene changed the stock market <laughs> in a big way now 30 years after the release of this movie they used this plot as inspiration for a new regulation in the fucking financial market yeah exactly in March 2010 the commodities future in commodities future and training commission uh, the chief, uh, Gary Glensler, said in testimony um, <laughs> to Congress, uh, we have uh, recommended banning using misappropriated government information to trade in the commodities markets. Now, in the movie Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy, the Duke brothers intended to profit from trades in frozen concentrated orange juice futures by uh, using an illicitly obtained and not yet public uh, crop report. Now, what they did is they instituted what they call the Eddie Murphy rule. <laughs> it came into effect of uh, Section 136 of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act of the uh, Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act under Section 746, <laughs> which deals with insider trading. You know, my, my favorite part of the whole thing is that it took them 30 years to make that a rule. <laughs> <laughs> People have been just doing this shit like no big deal. All right. Now, Trading Places was released theatrically in uh, in the United States on June tenth, nineteen eighty three. Its opening weekend is saying it earned seven million dollars in one thousand, pretty much one thousand theaters, ranking third of the uh, weekend after Octopussy, okay, and Return of the Jedi. Now, it remained in the top ten grossing movies for seventeen weeks, and it went on to gross over ninety million dollars in its U.S. run, making it the fourth highest grossing movie of nineteen eighty-three domestically, behind Flashdance, Terms of Endearment, and of course, Return of the Jedi. And it's also the it was also the second highest grossing R-rated movie of the year after Flashdance. Now, in t- adjusted for inflation, this movie is actually the fifty-eighth highest grossing R-rated movie of all time. You know, what's funny is it actually had a really slow opening weekend, mm-hmm. um, but Harris has actually been quoted as, as saying that um, he realized that they had a major hit on their hands because being in Hollywood as long as he had, mm-hmm. um, right after that opening weekend, numbers started coming back. Uh, he started hearing rumors um, that both uh, Katzenberg and Aaron Russo were both trying to jockey for credit yeah. for the film and as soon as he heard one of the two of them was out there trying to be in the position to take credit for it, he's like oh we got a monster on our hands All right now do you have anything else to the last one I've got yeah. is uh, Don Amici okay right so big big Hollywood star 40s and 50s mm-hmm. um, so when they were sitting down there doing the casting for this um, the casting director said okay we gotta get somebody classic for the roles of um, the Duke brothers right mm-hmm. so when he suggested Don Amici his assistant actually said 
I think he's dead. And like, no, he's not dead. I'd have known. I'm a casting director. I would know about that. So they started looking for him. They called the SAG office, and they found out his money was being sent to Arizona. Wow. And he's like, oh, shit. Like, that's a horrible sign. But then he, he ended up hearing from somebody else that um, they saw Don walking down uh, San Vicente <laughs> mm-hmm. in Santa Monica on a regular basis. So he called him, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he said, hey, you know, We'd love to have you come in, look at this thing, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to send you a script. said, yeah, sure. Do you want me to send you a car? And Don said, no, I drive. I'll, I'll meet you there. Yeah. So he comes in the next day mm-hmm. ready to read. Yeah. And and the casting director was like, no, you don't need to read. That's fine. Like, you know, we can do it. He's like, no, 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 I'm ready to do it. And uh, he, he got to talking with him, found out he hadn't worked in a film in 14 years. Yeah. He'd been doing dinner theater. Yeah. And uh, when, he was, when he was asked about it, like, why, why haven't you been doing movies? He says, why haven't you called? <laughs> And the great thing about this film for him was yes. after this movie hit... He won the Oscar. He, well, and then he worked continuously until his death. Yes. He got right back on there and he stayed at the top for... Yeah, the yeah, he, he won the Oscar for Cocoon. Yep. Yes, he did. Now, uh, one last thing, uh, which is a personal note for John Landis. Uh, he loved Don Amici. He loved Don Amici and uh, Ralph Bellamy, particularly Ralph Bellamy so much. Yeah. Because Ralph Bellamy... Uh, he said to this day, the only person that he allowed to ever call him Johnny is Ralph Bellamy. And because of that, he loved uh, Ralph Bellamy from all his movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Wolfman and stuff like that. So, yeah. Now, uh, our next movie, The Blues Brothers. Easily easily top five for me of all movies of all time. That's right. Definitely my favorite. It's my favorite musical. So, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, now, the characters of Jake and Elwood Blues were actually created by Belushi and Aykroyd. Uh, from this stuff on SNL. Now the char- now the actual conception of the Blues Brothers happened before, a little before SNL. Now, John Belushi was mainly a rock guy at the time, yeah. hardcore rock. He's the- big, big into music, but yeah. only rock. Yeah, but it was actually Aykroyd that put him into the whole mind frame of blues. He played some blues records for him. He's like, yeah, I well, did this. Well, so the, the, one of the things I read, so Dan Aykroyd was contracted with Second City in Toronto. Yes. And Belushi actually showed up one night after a show because mm-hmm. he was out scouting for talent. He was doing uh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Mm-hmm. I think this was just a little bit before he got on with SNL or right around that same time. Yeah. But he met him and they started talking. Mm-hmm. And Belushi told me he's from Chicago, trying to convince him to come out. Yeah. And you know, they started talking music. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd was saying, oh, well, you know, I'm mostly into blues. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd, or and, uh, John Belushi said to him that he, he never listened to blues. He goes, yeah. wait, you're from Chicago. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's like, you never listen to blues. No, never heard it. Mm. And, there, I mean, there's, a, there's some really great stories out there about it. Definitely look it up and read it. Mm-hmm. They both described it as it was love at first sight. Yeah. Once they got to talking with each other, it was just it was one of those moments where <laughs> the personalities connected and they gelled. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. The name the Blues Brothers actually came from Howard Shore, who was the first band leader for SNL. Right. And also, he did a lot of big movie scores, particularly my favorite one he ever did, The Fly. The David Cronenberg Fly. He was yeah. the one that did the composing for that. Now, the wardrobe for the Blues Brothers, the dark suits and the sunglasses, they were inspired by Roy Orbison, but the actual look originated on a skit on SNL. Um, where they would play ser- uh, secret service agents for Chevy Chase's uh, uh, President Four, but the actual debut in terms of music for the Blues Brothers is actually in a skit where they were the bees. Yeah. The, the and then Blues she was singing a song called "I'm the King Bee." You see, da- <laughs> you see Aykroyd in the back with the harmonica and the dark and glasses. They're wearing the glasses, but they're in bee costumes. Yeah. So it's so weird, but yeah, but it was a great performance, and you know the Blues Brothers kind of came from that. 
Now, Blue Shoe was already a star at this point he, because of the fact, you know, he had already done Animal House. Now, he was one of the few actors that was able to do what they called the triple threat. Yeah. He was the star of the number one movie in the country, Animal House. He was the star of the number one TV show in America, SNL. And he was, he, he was already uh, singing on the number one album, which is the first Blues Brothers album, mm-hmm. A Brief Case Full of Blues. In 1978. So, yeah, it was actually, they did performances. They actually opened for Steve Martin at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, they, look, the Blues Brothers still plays. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Not with him all the time, but, I mean, it, it became a thing. It's right, yeah. So they kind of, they got real popular off of that. Now, because of how popular a, brief, a, brief, a briefcase of blues got, full of blues or whatever, uh, Dan Aykroyd... Uh, John Belushi and their manager Bernie Brillstein, who's also brilliant, yep. they outlined the concept of a movie to Universal executive uh, Sean Daniel, who also worked on Animal House. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, because of the popularity of Animal House and SNL, Sean Daniel offered them guys a deal. Uh, now, in se- <laughs> I love this. In March 1979, Dan Aykroyd wrote a 324-page yep. screenplay. <laughs> Entitled The Return of the Blues Brothers. Now, it was intended to be a two-part movie. Now, for, for people who don't know, when it comes to a screenplay, one page pages. generally equals about one minute of screen time. So yeah. we'll, we'll help you out with the math a little bit here. This was a five-and-a-half-hour-long oh film. Oh, my God, bro. That's a, that he had, yeah. he had this opus that he had written. And as a joke, because how big it was, he actually bound the script in the covers of the L.A. phone book. Yeah. Yeah. It's as big as a phone book. That's how big it was. Now, the rough draft of the script itself, which was written, written primarily by Dan, uh, was basically freeform. It didn't have a clear story. It didn't have a clear beginning, middle, or end. Yeah, they took a lot of time putting that, that together. That's when John Landis came aboard. John Landis came aboard in spring of 79. He actually dropped out of doing The Incredible Shrinking Woman to do this movie. And he actually spent three full weeks streamlining the script to a workable length. Yeah, because they had like backstory of Tom backstory. They had the Blues Brothers backstory, and they had backstories of all the band members well, and whatnot. And the and the the storyline was completely different. So the Illinois Nazis in the original version mm-hmm. were actually going to buy the orphanage and kick the orphans out, and turn to their new headquarters. Right. And then if you've seen the film, which God by now you should have seen the film. Yeah, come on. Um, that they're they're basically. They're not even like they're nowhere near the central plot point. They're just another group that's pissed off the, the Blues Brothers, Brothers yeah. that adds an additional layer of fun. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. So uh, during the filming of this particular movie, so <laughs> Belushi would disappear. Yeah, he would, he'd just show up in people's homes and go raid their fridge. Yeah. So Dan Aykroyd actually looked around for Dan, uh, for John Belushi one night. He went to a house like apparently it's the only house on the block that had lights on. He went to the door. He was like. Hey, um, uh, Dan Ecker, and then the, the, the owner stopped and was like, you're looking for John Belushi, aren't you? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And then, and then he turned around, and you see John Belushi is in their house. He apparently came to their house, asked for some milk and a sandwich, and just crashed out on their couch. Well, and it probably has something to do with this other note that I found. Supposedly, there was a, there was a budget for cocaine on this film. Yeah. And all of the actors were doing a lot of cocaine because there's a lot of night sequences and so they mm-hmm. wanted to make sure everyone was always kind of up and going. Yeah. And apparently uh, John Belushi did more than his fair share of that. Yes, he did. Which actually led to some serious uh, problems with them when they were filming. If uh, if I remember correctly, well, here, let me double check. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Lou Wasserman, head mm-hmm. of Universal, would, would call them screaming because he'd find out that Production had slowed down. They're burning cash because 
every day that you're filming a movie, mm-hmm. there's a number on it. Yes. If it's a big day, we're going to do explosions, all kinds of stuff. It's a bigger number. If it's a day where it's two actors talking, it's a smaller number. Yeah. But every day has a number associated with it, 10,000, <laughs> 5,000, 100,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And any day you don't get your production done, you just set a, ca- a pile of cash on fire. So apparently Landis did not find out the budget of this movie until after the fact like they had already started filming they, they yeah. basically yeah. had had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to yeah. short of pissing Lou off to the point where he wouldn't talk to him but he finally did tell him the budget is like 17 million dollars and John Lynch is like um I'm pretty sure we spent that more already, than that. already. <laughs> well I mean so for a couple of years mm-hmm. they held the record for most cars crashed in the yes. movie at mm-hmm. 103 it was mm-hmm. broken two years later um by a movie called The Junk Man, which yeah. crashed 150, mm-hmm. and that stood until The Matrix Reloaded yeah. crashed 300. That's right. Um, but yeah. the, the copious amount of car crashes in this film are fantastic. Now, the line of dialogue between uh, between Blushy and uh, Ackroyd when he first gets out of jail, he's like, well, thank you, pal. Yeah. The day I get out of prison, my own brother picks me up in a police car. Now, that was actually added by Dan Aykroyd. And mainly, John Landis loved it because, of fact, his main favorite comedy duo of the, you know, old school comedy duo is Laurel and Hardy. That's who he envisioned yeah. uh, Dan and uh, John being, like a modern version of Laurel and Hardy. So they ha- kind of had that kind of, you know, banter between them. You know, these underdogs who are, you know, have musical in, uh, musical inclination they uh you know he liked that old aspect of it that's why you know he loves classic movies so he's yeah. making his own version of a classic movie well and as we're talking about them getting out of jail uh, that was the other great cameo from Frank Oz Oh, yeah. Because he's playing the uh, the prison guard yeah. who's checking all of his stuff back out <laughs> oh, yeah. one pair of sunglasses this is one unused prophylactic one soiled <laughs> uses the pencil yeah so gross <laughs> <laughs> to give him back his personal effects. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Carrie Fisher, who was in the movie as the mystery woman, actually got engaged to yep. Dan Aykroyd on the shoot after he saved her life uh, by applying the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah, she was choking, yeah. Yeah, she was choking, yeah. And also, uh, Belushi himself was actually nicknamed the Black Hole because he kept losing all his glasses. <laughs> but apparently he lost like hundreds of pairs of sunglasses during this movie. Every time he would do a scene, he would lose his glasses. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and actually... Um, we, the movie actually features a lot of great uh, performers, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. James Brown, you know, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those uh, acts were not used to lip syncing. To no, it, it really caused some challenges for a few of them. Yeah, James Brown ended up singing his uh, portion live with the... Uh, the backing the, the, track. The, the, yeah, with the backing track, and the choir was actually lip syncing. Yeah. Uh, the John Lee Hooker, boom, 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 boom. That was yeah. live. They recorded that one live, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the uh, Aretha Franklin thing, that was cut extensively because of the fact she couldn't get used to it. So. Yeah, it's weird. Well, if you're a real singer, it's weird to try to lip sync. Exactly. Now, you know, and actually, yeah. speaking of famous people, yeah. uh, do you know John Wayne's son was in this? He's like a driver, right? Ethan Wayne. He was a stunt driver. Yeah, a driver. Yeah, yep. I, saw, I saw that fact. I was like, wow. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Now, permission to film this movie in downtown Chicago was actually given to them after John and Dan yep. uh, offered to pay $50,000 to charity. Yep. You know, so it was like, okay, and, well, cool. and once they did that, they pretty much had the keys to Chicago. When you watch that film <laughs> yeah. and you see what they got away with, yeah. especially if you're a filmmaker at all, oh my God. you're going to go, how in the hell? In downtown metropolitan <laughs> Chicago. fucking Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> Now, while filming the opening scene, which we talked about in the jail, 
uh, the guards <laughs> at the prison were who the ones that were in the yeah. tower doing the helicopter shot where they do like the establishment shots of Chicago or whatever. They started shooting at the helicopter because they thought it was trying to spy on them. Yeah, they <laughs> didn't. They didn't. They didn't communicate that they were going to be doing helicopter shots. <laughs> but you shooting at the fucking. <laughs> Okay, now, uh, uh, right before they go into the famous, you know, mall chase scene or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, one dude asks, um, he has a stuffed doll. He's like, yeah, uh, you have Miss Piggy? That yeah. That was a stunt coordinator. You know what's great about that? So that was actually uh, filmed at a mall mm-hmm. uh, in Dixie Square. It was actually the Dixie Square Mall. It was actually Harvey, sorry, Harvey, Illinois. Yeah. Um, and it had been closed for about a year when they decided to go film it. Mm-hmm. If you've seen this, you'll see they just totally destroyed what was left of the interior of the mall. Yeah. Now, they actually got sued by the mall for failure to return to the original condition because during yeah. filming, there was a bunch of rumors going around town that they were actually going to be reopening the mall and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The lawsuit went on and on and on. They <laughs> never fixed it, and they finally tore this thing down in 2012. Mm-hmm. So they they had some high hopes about getting Universal. Oh, I like when they like they shopping as they chase yeah. disco pants and haircuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then one of the other great moments in that, which you'll see, uh, is a, a line used three times in there is after the cop car flips mm-hmm. and it stops spinning. They go, they broke my, my watch. watch. Yeah, the watch. Three thing. different cops get their watches broken in it, which is. <laughs> Yeah. Freaking hilarious. New Oldsmobiles are in this year. <laughs> yeah. That's a space in this mall. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, also uh, according to John Landis, John Belushi actually fucked up his back when he did the scene where he's falling down the stairs yeah. and the desk during the penguin scene. Apparently he's in a back brace and on painkillers for the rest of the shoot. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. Painkillers and cocaine. And also, ironically enough, Carrie Fisher, who's again in the movie, she was the guest host on SNL when the Blues Brothers were the musical act. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know something else kind of weird on the musical side? Mm-hmm. Little Richard actually declined to be in the film mm-hmm. because by that point he was only doing gospel music. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's kind of kind of crazy. It was a miss for sure because, I mean, mm-hmm. talk about a hell of a performance. Now, the famous car in the movie, the Bluesmobile, mm. the car is actually a 1974 Dodge Monaco. Now, the, the vehicles used in the movie were actual used police cars that were purchased by the California Highway Patrol. And they, that's why he has the whole, like, there's a 44, you know, 440 cubic inch plant. He's got yeah, yeah, yeah. cop motor, cop tires, cop shocks. He's a model made before catalytic, catalytic converters. So it can run good on regular guests. Yeah. So you say it's a new Bluesmobile or what? <laughs> Fix a cigarette lighter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, a total of 12 uh, Bluesmobiles were made for this movie, including one that was built just so it could fall apart, like when they went to Daily yeah. Plaza. Oh, that one's a, that's a, it's a great gag. Yeah, so apparently several uh, replicas have been built by collectors, but only one known original still exists, and it's owned by uh, Dan Aykroyd's brother-in-law. So Donna, Good call. I, there's Donna Dixon's brother owns it. <laughs> yeah. now, now, in the uh, Bluesmobile, they got an eight-track of Sam and Dave. Oh, hold on. Yeah. I'm coming. Now, on that track, two of the members of the Blues Brothers band Play. are playing on the track. Yep. Yeah, because they were members of the uh, Booker T and the MGs. Yeah, which is Donald the, Duck Cropper, right? And then Steve, uh, yeah, Steve, Steve the Colonel Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn. Or Donald Duck Dunn. Sorry, I mixed yeah. their names. I, like, I, like I Donald, blended them. Donald Duck Dunn. Yeah, like, that's yeah. a great one. He's the one, the big, he's the big one, the big afro in the pipe. Yeah. Well, that's what you want in a, in a bass player. Yeah, exactly. And funny enough, since we're talking about famous members of that band, the drummer, Willie Hall, mm-hmm. is actually the drummer on Shaft. Yeah. The, the thing from Shaft. Who's the black cat? Private, private dick. There's a six machine on the chest. <laughs> Shaft, that's him. Yeah, he's the drummer on that shit. That's Willie Hall, yeah. Now, uh, let's see what else we got here. Now, we talk about the actual uh, cameo, the director cameo we have in this movie. 
Steven Spielberg. Yes. He is the actual assessor for the for Cook County <laughs> in a famous scene at the very end of the movie. He's eating the sandwich. <laughs> eating the sandwich. Can I help you guys? Yeah. And <laughs> it's so crazy to see that. Now, Paul Schaefer was actually supposed to be a member yep. of the band, but uh, he was actually working on uh, Gilda Live, the Gilda Radner uh, one-woman show. And Belushi fired him because he felt he was being disloyal. Yeah, well, he's being disloyal to the band. That's, uh, and look, I get it. I mean, mm-hmm. Belushi really had a real band rolling. Another famous cameo in the movie, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, is the yeah. Waiter, <laughs> is, the, is the waiter at the damn restaurant, Shea yep. Paul. Very young Pee Wee Herman, by the way. And also in the a Graffiti on the Bridge, when the Blue oh, Rose That was my last one. That's a good one. Yeah, the, the Graffiti on the Bridge, you see a sign that says John Hart Deborah. It's John yeah. Landis and his wife. And that's Deborah. that's at the, the final location when they pull out from underneath the bridge when the cops are chasing them after they have the big big show. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> let's see what else I got here. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Oh, this is a good one that actually somebody pointed out. Now, when they're in the phone booth together, uh, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd actually says to John Belushi, who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, you know, there's the famous line yeah. from Ghostbusters, which was Dan Years Aykroyd, later. Years later. But yeah. in, it's in, just funny. And the greater irony is John Belushi was supposed to be Peter Frankman. Yep. So, yeah. It would be an even greater irony is if they brought him back as a ghost. Which they kind of did because Dan Aykroyd actually specifically said he wanted Slimer. To be, to, more be, like, to be the ghost of John Belushi, to be portrayed as... That's why you see yeah. him, like, stuffing his face. Yeah, and stuff yeah. Like that. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that far off. Not that far off at all. Now, John Candy, the great John Candy is also oh, in this movie. Oh, that's great. He's got a great... <laughs> orange whip? Yeah. Orange whip. Three, Three orange, orange whips. whips. <laughs> that was an improvised line. <laughs> I just wanted to go to... <laughs> and I also have a, a actual... You know, the one point where they get pulled over by the two... Um, Mounties, that, the, key, two, the two troopers that keep following them throughout yeah, yeah, yeah. the movie... By the way, those officers are named Daniel and Mount, named after the executive producers yep. that greenlit this movie, Sean Daniel and Tom Mount. Yeah. And so they actually have his uh, schemats readout. Schemats. Yeah. <laughs> I bet they got schemats. Schemats. State, county, municipal offender data system. So they actually have uh, Elwood Blues' one. It's Elwood Blues, his license plate number, currently under suspicion, warrants outstanding, Fifth, uh, 116 parking violations, 56 moving violations, arrest driver impound vehicle. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And also, uh, there's actually a, uh, if you look in uh, Elwood's apartment, there's actually a uh, Playboy spread out of Colleen Camp, who actually will end up starring in the Clue movie uh, as the uh, busty uh, uh, maid. Yep. And she's done a bunch of other movies. She's, I think she's like in Smokey and the Bandit 3 and a bunch of other shit. But yeah, she was, that, was her, that was her spread. And, <laughs> and apparently the principal photography for this movie was completed in February 1980 after six months. Which, if you again, if you're not used to film production, mm-hmm. it's a long-ass production for something that doesn't have a ton of CGI. Yeah, exactly. Great piece of irony here. Uh, when the Blues Brothers crash into like the record store in the fucking mall, mm-hmm. you see a cutout of Robin Williams for his new comedy album, Reality. What a concept. <laughs> and the great irony of that is Robin Williams might have been the last famous actor to have talked to John Belushi before he passed away yeah. in uh, March of 82. Yeah, he was partying with John, uh, he was partying with John Belushi the night he died. It's yep. crazy, yeah. And uh, we'll see what else we got here. Oh, yeah, uh... <laughs> 
Uh, it was actually the tenth most popular movie of the U.S. and Canada in 1980. Uh, they uh, actually, yeah, it's one of the most expensive movies ever made at that point. It cost them over thirty million dollars. Um, and also, funny enough, by comparison, Steven Spielberg's movie in 1941, which was filmed around the same time, yep. cost $35 million. That's when they had this big thing where it was like, Hollywood's going out of control, all these inflated budgets, yeah. $35 million. <laughs> 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 and ironically enough, both movies actually starred Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and John Candy. Yep. They were in both movies. <laughs> And also, this movie was actually released the same day as Empire Strikes Back. Yep. And both of those movies starred Carrie Fisher. Yep. <laughs> so Carrie Fisher had a good year in 81. She had a great year. Yes, she did. Uh, uh, this movie's actually uh, put among AFI's uh, list of the you know 100 funniest movies. Uh, and then the whole thing where you love the Tom Mankiewicz connection of it. Yep. Uh, when they're doing the whole interrogation of Mrs. Tarantino about the whereabouts of their band... And Dan Aykroyd is doing the Joe Friday Dragnet yeah. thing, and he would eventually go on to play you know, Joe, Joe Friday, Friday and Dragnet, Dragnet, directed by Tom Mankiewicz. Yep. <laughs> one of my favorite things about this film is that all these years later, it's still one of the most argued about films because everybody always argues: is it a buddy? Is it a buddy comedy? Is it just straight comedy? <laughs> is it a musical? And technically, everybody's still right at the end of the day. I've, mm-hmm. I've had some people like what I'd call like musical purists are like, well, they're not singing lines of dialogue. Although mm-hmm. you can argue that like respect and some of those different ones definitely are singing lines of dialogue. But mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, but it wasn't written for it. And so you always have that back and forth, which for me just adds an additional layer of fun and kind of intrigue to it and, and puts it at a whole new level of almost mystique, for lack of a better term. I'm going to quote like a, a senior hall in another movie we're going to talk about in a minute. They say it's a musical. I'm calling it a musical. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Now, the Blues Brothers opened in June of 1980. Uh, it uh, took in uh, $4 million on its opening weekend, ranking second behind Empire Strikes Back, and 10th overall in the year. Uh, grossed over $57 million domestically and $58 million foreign, uh, giving it a total of $115 million overall. It's the ninth highest grossing musical of all time and the 10th highest, rain, highest ranker in, uh, among comedy road movies whatever yeah and also yeah, that's one of those ones yeah, you're gonna argue yeah, what is it yeah and also it's second behind in terms of like SNL movies converted to film it's second behind the Wayne's World movies so yeah it makes sense exactly now our next movie do you have anything else for Blue Bulls? no no that's that's. I mean I could go on and on about it yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. next movie Coming, Coming to, to America. America oh say can you see <laughs> oh this is this, this is back this is back when every movie oh, had to have a song. Can oh, you sing? I'm coming to America. I love that movie so much. It's a great film. <laughs> All right, so Eddie Murphy actually handpicked John Landis to direct this movie. Now they had worked together, of course, on uh, Trading Places, mm-hmm. and also Landis being Landis, he actually modeled the movie after 1930s romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. That was his sensibility. Now, uh, Landis himself had a bad reputation because of the whole Twilight Zone incident, and because at this point he had a series of what were considered flops, but they were going to be actual classic movies. I think at this point he had made like Spies Like Us and Three Amigos. Mm-hmm. Apparently it didn't do that well at the box office, but dude. They've done great afterwards. Like, funny, hilarious movies. Yeah. You know I mean? Now, um... At this point, this this is when Eddie Murphy actually details 
what happened between them. They actually had a falling out on the set of Coming to America. So what happened was Eddie said, uh, yeah, he had done four fucked up movies in a row, and I knew he had uh, spent a lot of money on his trial. I went to Paramount and said I wanted to use Landis. They had reservations. His career was fucked up, but I said, I'm going to use Landis. I like this guy. You know what I'm saying? He said, uh, always uh, always say that the one... He actually said this on his uh, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. He always says the one fun experience he had making a movie was doing Trading Places with John Landis. You mean Coming to America? No, no, no. Oh, trading no. to a, Trading Places? Still? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, yeah, and he said it in the interview, too. Like, the one fun experience he had making a movie was trading places. Everything else okay. since then has been work. Yeah. So Makes sense. Yeah. And he said, I've worked with other directors that I really like, like Marty Bress and Walter Hill and Tony Scott. But with Landis, uh, he plays around on the set a lot, which, you know, I like. You know what I'm and I made Paramount hire him. Now, the working title of this movie was called The Quest. And it's also subject of... Uh, <laughs> litigation. Litigation. The subject of uh, Buckwald versus Paramount civil suit. Uh, so Art Buckwald, a uh, humorist at the time, sued Paramount Studios, alleging they actually stole his idea. He uh, did a 82, uh, 1982 treatment about a rich uh, African uh, potentate coming to America for a state visit. Uh, and they you know, wanted to turn it into a movie. Now, uh, the actual suit was filed in 1990 against the film's producers. Paramount optioned the uh, treatment from Buckwald and John Landis initially was attached, and Eddie Murphy was uh, attached as a lead. But after a couple of years of being in development hell, they kind of abandoned the project. However, in 87, they brought it back and started working on it, changing it to Coming to America, and stating that it was a story created by Eddie Murphy. Well, so from, mm-hmm. what, from what I understand, what I'd heard, uh, the unofficial official word on it is that they, they basically took his idea... They did a carbon copy, and then they changed the name, and then Eddie Murphy came in and made it an Eddie Murphy movie, and that's where you get him playing a couple of different characters, Arsenio Hall playing different characters, yep. some of the more entertaining aspects, like the McDowells and you know the Black Awareness Rally and all yep. those extras were in there. But the fact of the matter remains, it had an actual through line that you could see through the studio where it was there, which is why during the court case they ended up, losing essentially having mm-hmm. having to settle it with him because mm-hmm. it was just way too close and it was obvious they had lifted his idea yeah. um, and it's also where there's a really great uh, really great statement in there uh, during I think it was one of the um, uh, one of the depositions mm-hmm. where they're asking Eddie Murphy about the money he got and what, what he got for doing the movie and mm-hmm. what his profit participation was like and they were basically asking if he was getting net or gross participation mm-hmm. and he said that he doesn't take monkey points which was what he referred to net group, net, net uh, participations as, mm-hmm. uh, because they really are. I mean, if you if somebody tells you they're going to give you net participation on a film, mm-hmm. that means you're never going to see another dime. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever you get on the upfront, they're going to find a way to say that everything that comes in on the sales side uh, is expensed somewhere, so you're not going to see a dime. Right. <laughs> now, uh, the uh, the actual settlement itself was actually nine hundred thousand dollars. Now, all the films... Which, uh, for a writer, is not bad. Yeah, all the scenes uh, filmed in New York were filmed completely in uh, February 1988. Then the production moved to L.A. Now, uh, the palace, the bathroom, all the other stuff was actually built on Paramount. uh, And they kept the... uh, Actually kept the production on schedule, and the budget itself was at $30 million. Pre-production started in 87, and principal principal photography started in uh, January of 88 in New York. 
But apparently the production was played by intermittent blizzards during the five weeks of filming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They had uh, new, the different New York uh, ex- uh, exterior shots like uh, Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, uh, Madison Square Garden, the Van Wyck Expressway, a car wash, the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, all these different spots that they had throughout the movie. Now, McDowell's itself was actually a Wendy's on Queens Boulevard that was mm-hmm. scheduled to be renovated. Uh, they uh, The production got approval from McDonald's, the corporate headquarters, to use it. Uh, but the thing about it is apparently word didn't get passed down to the local outlets out there. <laughs> so uh, apparently when the McDonald's sign went up, a manager of a McDonald's from like a half a mile away came down with his lawyer and took photographs telling him he's going to sue everybody <laughs> in there. <laughs> now, this particular restaurant actually stayed in business till 2013. but Not, the, not as McDonald's, as a Wendy's. No, no, it's, it's a Wendy's. <laughs> it came back yeah. up as a Wendy's. Yeah, and uh, actually it's been since been demolished. But they actually, funny enough, they actually did a pop-up out here yeah. of McDonald's a couple years back. Well, and they're doing it, I think, because they'd started talking about doing the uh, Coming to no, America, America 2, yeah. which they just finished filming. Now, principal photographer of this movie, 83 days. Which, that's not, I mean, that's longer than mm-hmm. most, but it's not that long. Not that long at all, really. And then uh, pre-production was only, post-production was only six weeks. Well, and especially when you look at the opening sequences and mm-hmm. how, how much choreography goes into it, 83 yeah. days is a lot. Now, like you mentioned earlier, this is the first time Eddie Murphy played multiple characters in a movie, which becomes a trademark of his. And it's also the first time he worked with Rick Baker. Yep. Eddie and and Rick Baker got together. They were re-teamed together in the Nutty Professor movies, Life, and Norbit. Mm -hmm. Now, Eddie and Arsenio and a couple other people went through like three to four hour makeup sessions with the characters. Now, Rick Baker took life cast of all the actors, and they, they put like mold rubber appliances on their faces and whatnot. And they actually had hand-woven hair, eyebrows, and mustaches. Yep. Yeah. Now, uh, the real kicker in terms of the makeup test, which was John Landis's idea, <laughs> Eddie Murphy as the Jewish man. Who's, Saul. Yeah. They never named him in the movie, but the, apparently the character's name is Saul. So they had Eddie in full makeup as this Jewish guy going around the golf cart all, all around Paramount, yeah. fucking with people as his old well, Jewish he, he went to one department after yeah. another, and then he would say in his regular voice that he's Eddie Murphy and no one would believe him. And he's like, what? Well, no, they wouldn't believe him. They're yeah, like, no, 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 they're just like, what? Are you kidding? Like, yeah. <laughs> and actually, on one of his comedy albums, he actually records like a little thing, like he's talking to Rick Baker, and Saul's like, uh, I'm in this new movie, you know, in the Jewish yeah, voice, yeah. like, the one that I mean, uh, what's, who's the star that? Oh, yeah, Eddie Murphy. Oh, Christ, I hate him. <laughs> he's the worst. He's the worst. He can't act. And he's ugly. <laughs> he's, a, he's an ugly kid. It's Eddie Murphy's scene. It's, it's so fucking funny. Yeah. And uh, actually, in the credits of the movie, the Zamundan Film Commission is yeah, thanked for the cooperation. Exactly. <laughs> Now the name of the the name of the country Zamunda actually came from a Richard Pryor routine uh, where he came up with the uh, the name of the country just a fake name of an African nation and they used it. Yep. So uh, now uh, of the I'm trying to do the good fact. Ah, yeah. Here we go. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. That's, that's probably the first biggest cameo, sitting there getting his hair cut. That is his first real film. Like, you see him being the kid, getting his hair cut in the, in the barber scene. Now, he actually had a scene where he actually had dialogue. His actual credit is boy getting haircut, but he actually had a scene where he was talking to the Eddie Murphy character, Clarence, saying, like, he didn't have enough money to pay for the haircut. <laughs> so, Eddie Murphy's character responds by cutting a patch out of his head. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, yeah, another thing about the barber scene. They call, uh, you know, Akeem Kunta Kente. Hey, it's Kunta Kente. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Funny enough, John Amos, Cleo McDowell, 
was Kunta Kinte, the yep. adult version of Kunta Kinte. And then the, the lady that played the queen, Madge Sinclair, was actually Kunta Kinte's wife. And James Earl Jones, King Joffrey Jofer, was Alex Haley. All of them were in Roots. Yep. Every last one of them. Yeah. And then also in the club scene, when they go into the, uh, looking for a girl, like, you know, you hear the one song, like, I know I got it. Yeah. to me, I know I got it. That's Eddie Murphy singing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. And then the first girl he meets, the one with the pre- the pink uh, dress on and you know pretty light skinned girl or whatever, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was Eddie's girlfriend at the time. Oh well, I guess it has as its benefits being Eddie's also, girlfriend. Also, <laughs> uh, you know Vanity from the Last Dragon. Yeah, that's her sister. Oh really? Yeah, oh, I didn't uh, realize that. Yeah, that was her sister. Yeah. Now Eddie Murphy's demands, because in fact Eddie had become this huge star at the time, his demands included uh, fifteen hundred dollars a week for his personal trainer. Around the clock chauffeur service, a valet, and a thousand dollars a week for his brother Charlie Murphy to appear as a stand. Oh, Charlie Murphy to appear as a stand-in in the movie. That works. <laughs> yeah, it works just fine for me. Yeah. Now, there's one particular scene where King Joffrey Joffrey James Earl Jones is looking for a king. He says, "Do not alert him of my presence. I shall <laughs> deal with him myself." And there's a homage to him, James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. Yeah. And he says, "It's a very similar line of dialogue in Return of the Jedi, looking for Luke Skywalker." Yeah. No, leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, going back to one of the John Landis' trademarks in this movie, breaking the fourth wall. Yep. A bunch of people break the fourth wall in this movie. <laughs> the first and the funniest one to me was uh, Eddie Murphy's meeting his bride-to-be, Vanessa Bell Calloway. And he's like, uh, you know, uh, anything I say you will do, yes, your highness. Bark like a dog. Arr, arr. And he just looks at the camera. Well, there's, there's the other one. Actually, my favorite in it is uh, when Arsenio Hall breaks the fourth wall with the ugly girl. <laughs> Oh, yeah. With you and your little friend too, and he, sp- <laughs> he looks at the camera and spits. <laughs> yeah. That spit take. Or when they uh, they're doing the, the girls rapping. Oh my yeah. My name is Peaches, and I'm the best. And they just in there like <laughs> open mouth. Oh, the DJs oh, to, to feel, feel my, my breath. That's a great scene too, man. Oh man. Did um, you know that uh, Sidney Poitier was originally um, considered to be uh, King Joffe? That was gonna be my next fact, yeah. dude. <laughs> and he actually, I, I read a story about that. He's like, uh, like he found out about it after the movie came out. I was like, really? Yeah. Apparently, he's, <laughs> apparently, Sidney's agent like didn't think it was a good role for him. He's like, are you fucking? Don't ever, do, don't ever like, do that to me. Don't again. ever do that to me again. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like I would love to have done that. Why don't you just talk to me? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now the opening scene of the movie, the uh, the little shot, the establishing shot where they go through, you know, Zamunda, yeah, yeah, go yeah. to the castle. The song, uh, the <laughs> that shit, the song by uh, the group Lady Smith Black Mombazo. Uh, they had actually got real famous because of the fact they did the Paul Simon album Graceland, and had the, they had a song you know, um, you can call me Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, ooh, they did that shit in that same <laughs> shit. <laughs> you can call me Betty, and Betty can call me. You can call me Al. In the fucking video with Chevy Chase, <laughs> that shit. But you know the you know uh, you know the American version of the song they're singing. No, what was that? Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. That's the American. The lion sleeps tonight. A wee moe, a wee moe. That's what they're singing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy when you think about it. You can't hear it, but like, oh, okay, gotcha. Now, um, the first person offered the role of Lisa McDowell was actually Vanessa L. Williams, former Miss uh, 
Yeah, former yeah. Miss uh, Miss uh, America or whatever. And yeah, she she had to turn it down or whatever. And uh, looks like we're oh my Dude, god, we're actually serious? going. Yeah, we're gonna have to do a. I'm sorry, everyone. We're gonna end up having to do a, a two parter here. It's it's what happens when we get into this good of quality. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna tag the spot where I was in my notes for this one because we actually there's some interesting conflict talking before about we the got, relationship yeah. sour between Landis and yeah, Murphy. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the fight. Yet. I know because it, it gets into some good stuff right there. So okay, this is obviously again one of our longest. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna have to have to bow out here because oh, uh, we're running good. off battery again. Sorry, Jesus everyone. Christ. I know. Right. Well, it's, you know it's. It's free, so enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Free, okay. free for you. We're paying for it. All right, guys. So yeah, this is <laughs> going to be our second two-parter after our, uh, the uh, Atlanta Color one. So hey, you know what? The good news is we don't have to figure out what we're doing next week. Damn right. We're we, ready to rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So next week will be part two of our exploration of Mr. John Landis. But until then, this has been dropping that culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD, and I'm AJ. See you guys next time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>